Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Today, I'm going to be reading you my book, Everything You Should Know About Healthy Blood Sugar, which came out in 2022. I've had to split this recording into three parts to post it on podcast land. And you can get this book on Amazon, and you can see this and all of my other books on my website, notusbooks.org. And in the audiobook section, you can also see the free audio and video versions of all of my books, including this one. It is on YouTube where I read the book to you and you can see the words on the screen. So you can find everything that I do, all the social media channels, hundreds of book reviews, most of them are about health, and an archive of this podcast, including episodes that are not posted to podcast here, secret episodes. You can see all of that on notusbooks.org. Links are in the description, of course. And I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you. Everything you should know about healthy blood sugar. Simple strategies to conquer almost any health problem. Chapter 1. Introduction. I was born twisted up in my mother's womb, with dislocated hips, and I lived with chronic pain every day for 25 years. I was so fragile that I could turn my head too quickly and then have to wear a neck brace to school for the next week or two. I couldn't play basketball or fight or do most of the things that a young boy might want to do. I had insomnia, chronic involuntary muscle twitches and cramps, chronic stomach pain, acne, headaches, and I also had chronic low blood sugar. I had all of these problems until I learned the things that are in this book and all of these problems were alleviated miraculously fast when I applied this information. On my 26th birthday, I started on the final missing piece of my puzzle, in the form of a handful of sample packets of a bone and joint supplement. In less than a week, I could sleep perfectly, I had no more muscle pains, cramps, or twitches, and I could comfortably roll my neck all the way around for the first time in my life. Low blood sugar seems to be minor compared to those other things, but I now know that it was all connected. 
Though my major concerns disappeared quickly, it took several years to really figure out the eating and drinking required to provide and sustain healthy blood sugar. It turns out that it is less complicated to rebuild a knee nutritionally than it is to have healthy blood sugar all the time. This is because a blood sugar problem is not an on-off switch. Having healthy blood sugar is part of being healthy in general, and the recipe for a healthy body involves tuning several dials including macronutrients, foods, and micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. You could think of our bodies like a car, in a crude metaphor. You could think of food, macronutrients, like gasoline. It is true that our bodies take most of our food and turn it into glucose, which is food for the cells. In the cell, glucose is basically burned, like gasoline, to provide heat energy. Higher up, our daily energy comes largely from this micrometabolism, the burning of glucose. But, a vehicle requires more than gasoline. It also requires oil to reduce friction in the engine, power steering fluid to maneuver smoothly with ease, brake fluid for the brake lines to function, and so on. The human body has a much longer list of functions, and a much longer list of nutritional requirements than even the most complicated human technology today. In this book, I have attempted to outline how your body car works, in simple terms, and the basic answers to how to actually get all the stuff your body needs in your daily life. Everything on my list of health problems, except blood sugar, was obviously a problem. Pain and inflammation are clear, but blood sugar is not so easy to notice, even when it is happening to you. Symptoms of blood sugar problems can appear as everything from headaches to gangrene. Mood and behavior problems, many sleep problems, and simple things like getting tired after a meal are all symptoms of a blood sugar problem, and all tend to have many other things blamed as the cause. Your behavior problem can be blamed on your relationship with your parents, and your nightmares can be blamed on stress. Even though the relationship between blood sugar problems and practically every other problem you can name is well established in proper scientific publications, this information is barely applied when it comes to standard practice. You or your child may be given pharmaceutical, psychoactive drugs for a behavioral or attention problem, and the mainstream response to your gangrene is antibiotics and painkillers until the limb is amputated. Blood sugar problems are not fixed with drugs, tests, or surgeries, and yet these are all the mainstream medical world has to offer someone with a blood sugar problem. Whether the problem is minor, like waking up at night to urinate, or major, like diabetes, High-tech medicine gives us a collective shrug of the shoulders. The reason for this is because nutrition is not on the list of required education for any medical specialty. Your endocrinologist requires a medical degree just like your regular family doctor, but neither of them require a course in nutrition. If doctors were required to learn about nutrition, they might be forced into some uncomfortable realizations. Since nutritional studies are heavily based in animal research and husbandry, one of these realizations would probably be the curious fact that wild animals do not get blood sugar problems, generally. Wild animals tend not to have diabetes, arthritis, clogged arteries, or cancer, but all of these were commonly found in captive animals until we figured out their nutrition. Animal foods are now standardized, and every species you can name has a formula that includes the nutrients required to prevent all of the diseases known to humanity, including those in the blood sugar category. Every disease that a human can develop can also develop in any mammal. When it comes to diabetes, any vertebrate, an animal with a spine, can experience it. 
from a snake to a hummingbird. Farmers learn these facts in agricultural school, but doctors do not learn this in medical school. Similarly, many primitive human populations are known to avoid diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and pretty much everything else that modern medicine has failed to eradicate. The blend of knowledge from successful primitive people and modern animal nutrition provides the recipe for us modern people to correct our blood sugar problems. When my problems disappeared, I immediately started telling people what I had learned. And I also started selling the nutritional products that helped me. I quickly realized that products alone were not enough. People needed to understand the information before they would willingly apply it. And the strategies involved are more than just consuming products. If you take all the essential nutrients required for healthy blood sugar, but continue to eat the standard American diet, you will most likely continue to have a blood sugar problem. Our cultural habit of reacting to problems instead of preventing them is one reason why medicine is not helpful in rectifying a blood sugar problem. Medicine is about responding to health problems. Whether the medicine is a natural herbal concoction or a pharmaceutical drug, the intent and the method is the same responds to a health problem after it has occurred. This method is appropriate when it comes to infections and other pathogenic sicknesses, but it makes no sense for health issues that are caused by nutritional problems. Medicines can kill bugs, they can ease our pain, they can thin our blood and improve our circulation and all kinds of great things, but no medicine can correct a nutritional problem. Blood sugar problems are not caused by pathogens. Livestock and primitive people do not prevent diabetes by having the best medicines. They have what they need in their lifestyles. My job now is simply to help people get healthy. One of the keys to being healthy is having healthy blood sugar. Every day I am asked what this means, and the answer can be fairly complicated, but the strategies are not. Once you understand why the list of things to do and to avoid are in the recipe, or the protocol, to attain healthy blood sugar, Actually applying it is not that difficult. I am now in my seventh year in this business, and I think I have finally figured out how to communicate these strategies effectively. I don't have any university degrees, and I don't think anyone needs to know any three-syllable Latin words to understand the basic concepts and strategies required to be healthy. I like to say that any idiot can heal themselves. Often we give our recommendations in point form. Footnote 1. Our or we, usually refers to the people, myself included, who believe in Dr. Joel Wallach's explanation for diseases. Sometimes I am referring to the specific team I am in business with promoting these strategies. Return to text. Often we give our recommendations in point form, which doesn't help you understand why we recommend do these things and don't do these other things. When the reason for the advice isn't adequately understood, I really don't expect the average person to actually follow it. All of us that came to this table with a blood sugar problem had some habit or missing piece that I hope to make clear here. This book is my attempt to fully explain the steps and theory behind achieving healthy blood sugar. These days, many of the people we deal with are already health conscious. They already try to eat well and most of them already take some supplements and herbs. Many of these health conscious people still have a blood sugar problem but only need to add a few things and subtract a few things from their diet and supplements because they are already doing many things correctly. Many people these days are already aware that they need to take care of themselves, and these people tend to already live by a few of our rules. They don't want to take drugs. They don't want to get sick or develop cancer. 
Smoking rates have been declining for decades, as has the consumption of saturated fat and cholesterol, which supports the idea that people are more health conscious today than ever. Anyone who already believes that the answer to health must be somewhere other than mainstream medicine already understands the basis for our alternative approach. Rather than treating a problem, we believe that the body can have healthy blood sugar, weight, skin, lungs, and so on, simply by providing the body with the nutrition it needs, and consciously avoiding the things that screw up the body. It sounds too simple, but it is the true solution to blood sugar problems. Before 2020, we did a lot of events, everything from small vendor markets and parking lots, flea markets and churches, to major health conventions in big cities. The people who come to these events in dire need of answers for serious health problems tend to be doing almost everything wrong. They might be required to change almost everything about the way they eat, both the ingredients and the way they are cooked, and add a serious and relatively expensive supplement regimen if they really want to become healthy as fast as possible. Though the average person is in rough shape and habitually eats all the wrong foods, the truth is that the average person will only need to take a fraction of the advice in this book for them to get their blood sugar under control. Most people take only some of our advice or products and achieve a result. In blue-collar towns and cities, where we do most of our footwork, our average customer continues their bad habits, while simply adding the missing nutrients. They continue smoking, drinking, eating junk foods, and so on but many or most of them still reduce or eliminate their symptoms. If we are lucky, they quit one or two bad foods. Hardly anyone follows all of our advice, yet we remain in business because the few core strategies are so successful, even without full compliance. I live in a small town, far removed from any city, and yet there is a reasonably sized health food section at my local grocery store. It has gluten-free cookies and noodles and crackers and cereals, it has supposedly healthier chips, which tend to be made from something more exotic than the humble potato. They have fermented milk or kefir, organic honey, and all kinds of trendy health foods and supplements. Even out here in a little mining town, there are enough health-conscious people to sustain a large section of the grocery store. Organic food is becoming a standard option, even in restaurants. All of this suggests that the will to invest in our health is already there and yet diabetes and other blood sugar problems continue to rise. Since I am in the health business, I know that many people who are dealing with blood sugar problems in themselves or their children do already eat well. Not only that, they tend to exercise. They tend to meditate. They tend to raise their kids well and earn good livings and seem to do everything right, and yet they can't seem to get their blood sugar under control. Many of these health-conscious people will already be familiar with some of the ingredients in this recipe for healthy blood sugar, but they are missing one or more of the keys. A lot of this is mainstream knowledge at this point, and I hope to tie it all together and add the pieces that are not so well known. Since blood sugar problems are associated with so many other health problems, using the strategies in this book will probably alleviate those too. Though I cannot conclusively prove it, I believe all serious health problems such as cancer and autoimmune diseases will have a blood sugar problem involved. I will attempt to make the case in this book that the same food problems and nutrient deficiencies that cause blood sugar issues also cause practically every other health problem plaguing the modern world. If everything from seasonal allergies to osteoporosis to the wide range of blood sugar problems is caused by long-term eating habits and missing nutrients, 
then roughly the same food and supplement protocol can be used to support all of those body systems, which should alleviate the various problems. Since we operate mostly online these days, we do not actually see our clients in real life. We do not need to see any blood tests or perform any physical tests of any kind, and I don't care much about what their current blood sugar levels are. That might sound wild to someone who has been involved in the medical system. You don't need to know my blood sugar levels to help me with my blood sugar? Really? The body can regulate itself. Any help we offer is not actually us doing the work. We give food and nutrient advice and we expect the body to do the rest. We don't need to know the numbers because we expect the body to bring the numbers under control, regardless of what they currently are. I say this with confidence because we see this all the time. People take the advice to varying degrees, and most of them do achieve healthy blood sugar. It's one of the quicker results we expect in this business. I've seen people get off their blood sugar medications in less than a week, with permission from their doctors, using the advice in this book. They also tend to be on blood pressure medications if they have a blood sugar problem, and usually these people drop those as well. We cannot tell people to take or not to take medications, but we can talk about them and encourage the person to work with whoever prescribed them. Our advice has nothing to do with drugs. Any doctor can see whether their medications are still necessary or not by doing the same tests they used to diagnose the original problem. This also goes for hormones, neurotransmitters, body temperature, pH, and so on. The body can regulate itself if it is healthy. Achieving a healthy body is our objective. Healthy blood sugar is an automatic consequence of a healthy body. As I am giving health advice, and I am not a licensed medical practitioner, I am obligated to offer you a disclaimer. The advice and information in this book is not intended to treat a disease. What we are really doing is helping you get healthy. A healthy person does not have a disease or symptoms requiring medical treatment. Treating a problem and eliminating a problem by becoming healthy might sound like the same thing, but legally they are very different. I am allowed to help you get healthy, but I am not allowed to specifically diagnose, treat, or cure a disease. My first health book, Fake Diseases, goes into this concept much further. But for our purposes here, you must only understand that every blood sugar problem, except type 1 diabetes, requires no medical intervention of any kind. No tests, drugs, or surgeries are necessary. Diseases are names for groups of symptoms. Some diseases have a singular cause, such as vitamin C deficiency causing the symptoms we call scurvy. But most symptoms and diseases have multiple influences. Someone with scurvy will probably also have other problems. It's almost impossible to be deficient in only one vitamin at a time. Singular nutrient deficiencies hardly exist outside of laboratories. The average civilian eats everything on our list of bad foods all the time, guaranteeing multiple deficiencies. Though health consciousness is popular, few people know the full list of nutrients they require for healthy bones, brain, liver, metabolism, and healthy blood sugar. Even fewer know how to actually attain that list and get it in the body efficiently and affordably. As you improve your health, your body will be able to regulate its blood sugar. It may not happen rapidly, but it can. The food recommendations are the same for children and adults, as are the nutritional requirements. I don't expect anyone to implement everything on our to-do list immediately, but I expect them to start somewhere and begin to improve. I expect them to start on eliminating the bad foods but I know that it will take time to completely replace everything in the average kitchen.
None of this has anything to do with genetics or pharmaceutical management. It is not necessary to blame your genes or attempt to regulate your body chemically. There are no side effects to being healthy. Most people don't know there is a solid nutritional option simply because their doctors never told them about it. Chapter 2. Type 1 Diabetes Probably the biggest source of confusion in speaking about healthy blood sugar is the categorical difference between type 1 diabetes and every other form of blood sugar problem. Since type 1 is fundamentally different, we will cover it first. Type 1, in our view, is a birth defect, and it only comprises about 2% of the diabetic population. We call it an inborn error of metabolism. You would think that this would be an agreed, objective reality, but since there are many different theories about type 1, I have to point out that this type 1 is a birth defect viewpoint is not commonly held. All mammals and all vertebrates can be born with type 1 diabetes. If all the correct nutrients are not in place during pregnancy, this inborn error of metabolism prevents enough insulin from being produced. Insulin is a hormone. It's a peptide hormone, which means that it's a small protein. It gets blood sugar, glucose, into cells. Wikipedia says that it regulates the metabolism of carbohydrates, fats, and protein, which is true. Carbs, fats, and proteins are all turned into glucose to feed the cells, and without insulin, the end stages of metabolism, getting the glucose into cells and using it, is compromised. Imagine one guy standing in front of a big furnace, shoveling in coal. He's got a conveyor belt of coal piling up in the room, and he's got to keep shoveling it in. This guy is kind of like insulin, except that every cell in every organ of your body, from the liver to the skeleton, is supposed to have whole crews of workers shoveling in glucose, basically all the time. With type 1, imagine a small crew of shovelers trying to handle the work of a crew a hundred times larger. Coal is delivered faster and faster, in larger and larger quantities. As the baby becomes a child and the child becomes an adolescent, they are eating more and more. The body grows and has much bigger systems with much higher demands for all nutrients. Yet there's only a few little insulin workers tirelessly, hopelessly shoveling. Coal keeps piling up in our metaphor as glucose remains trapped outside of cells, unable to perform its ultimate function. We use a lot of insulin. Each molecule only lasts from 5 to 15 minutes, so the demand for replenishment is relentless. Insulin is a hormone, and hormones are the messengers of the body. They are defined as any substance that is produced in one part of the body and causes an action somewhere else. And beyond that, they are not easy to characterize, since hormones take many forms and perform many different functions. There are several nutrients that can be potentially missing in the mother's system that will produce this birth defect. Generally, we don't like to pick out individual nutrients, because all of the essential nutrients are required for a healthy body and a healthy pregnancy. They all work together and when any of them are missing, the whole recipe can fall apart. Since nutrient deficiencies are most likely to happen with more than one nutrient at a time, filling in the one, two, or handful of nutrients known to prevent birth defects can still cause a problem. The nutrients that are key for one system in the body will have relationships with other nutrients that may not be important for the thing we are discussing. They all work together somewhere in the body. I'm only saying this because we often see upset comments when we do not specifically outline the individual nutrient or nutrients responsible for the thing being discussed. 
The reason we avoid discussing individual nutrients as much as possible is because people tend to run out and buy that one nutrient. As will be covered, there are many reasons why nutrients in general are very deficient in our food supply, and so it will never be wise to single out individual nutrients for individual benefits. Since all the essential nutrients work together, we want to take them all for the amalgamated benefit of being healthy, including all systems in the body. Sometimes we need to boost one or a few key nutrients to support a specific system, but that is still in addition to a baseline of these nutrients. Though I do often discuss individual nutrients, and I will in this book, I do so at the risk of failing to emphasize the importance of all 90 essential nutrients. I have included the full list of nutrients in the end notes, but I know that the list itself is not that helpful. You can't run out and buy the whole list effectively. We do sell products containing what we believe are smart formulas, but for these formulas to make sense, first we have to understand the different types of nutrients and how people in the wild actually got them. We will discuss all of this, but here for type 1, this is relevant because our opinion about the solution to birth defects is not only to take the nutrients known to prevent birth defects, but also to ensure that all the essential nutrients are being consumed, as well as avoiding a few bad foods. What has specifically gone wrong in the birth defect resulting in type 1 diabetes is a disruption in the beta cells, which are the cells that make insulin in the pancreas. The pancreas is a gland, which is any organ that produces and releases substances into the body. The pancreas contains clusters of cells known as islets of Langerhan. This was discovered in 1868 by a medical student in Berlin, Paul Langerhan, who had no idea what these islets were for. Among these clusters of cells are the beta cells. About 20 years after this discovery came the understanding that their function was to produce a chemical that was initially called islatin. We now call that chemical insulin. In addition to making insulin, the pancreas makes pancreatic juices, which contain many enzymes that are required to digest food components. An enzyme is a biological catalyst, something that starts a chemical reaction like the spark plugs in a car providing ignition for a whole chain reaction of processes to kick off. Enzymes are required to digest the food proteins, fats, sugars, and starches that we consume. For example, the enzyme lactase is required to break down and digest the sugar lactose. By the way, lactose intolerance is basically the same problem as type 1, an inborn error of metabolism, which leads to not enough lactase being produced. With insufficient lactase, lactose fails to be broken down properly, and the familiar bloating, cramping, and diarrhea is the result, as those symptoms are caused by foods not being digested properly. Other enzymes include lipases that digest fats or lipids, and proteases that digest protein, as well as enzymes that digest sugars and starches. There are enzymes produced in several parts of our body that are required to break down and absorb every type of food component. Without enough insulin, the body must have some outside source, which in our modern case is provided by synthetic insulin. End note 2. Synthetic is often a misleading term when talking about nutrients or enzymes. Synthetic basically just means that it was produced in a laboratory or commercial setting. It has nothing to do with whether it is natural or not. In the case of synthetic insulin, it used to come primarily from pigs and cows. Their pancreases make insulin and enzymes just like ours, and we simply harvested them.
Now most synthetic insulin comes from bacteria or yeast, and some fairly complicated genetic recombining. Though I cannot claim to fully understand the process, my interpretation is that insulin-producing genes are entered into the bacterium E. coli, or yeast, which then produce insulin that is easily harvested. Return to text. The type 1 diabetic will require this synthetic insulin for the duration of their life. Our aim is to help people improve their overall health, even if this specific problem cannot be fixed. In most cases, with the basic food and supplementation protocol, the person with type 1 will be able to significantly reduce their need for insulin. Chances are, they are producing a small bit of insulin themselves. This is especially true for those who were diagnosed during puberty. They were producing enough to evade diagnosis until they started to grow and have new hormonal demands. Suddenly there was not enough insulin there for the bigger child to get glucose into the cells. They didn't have enough shovelers anymore. Invariably, the type 1 diabetic will have other symptoms of poor health. They might be overweight, they might have acne or asthma, or get migraines or muscle cramps. Basically any common complaint, or even another separate disease, can exist alongside type 1. This is true for any disease. Someone with arthritis can also have diabetes, for example, and both will likely have a blood pressure problem, tooth decay, and be at risk for everything from cataracts to cysts. The problem isn't thinking that type 1 is causing these other problems. It is not. Type 1 diabetes is strictly a lack of insulin, and that problem is taken care of with the use of synthetic insulin. Type 1 does not cause any other problem, and if someone has any other problems, as long as it is not another inborn error of metabolism, then those other problems are reversible. All birth defects are completely preventable, including this particular inborn error of metabolism. But once it happens, it cannot be undone by any method we currently know about. Someone with type 1 can still be healthy, following everything to be covered in this book, but they will still need insulin. This is merely to say that the person with type 1 can get their weight under control, or get rid of their chronic pain, stop the migraines, and any other standard health problem. They'll still need insulin, but they do not need to deal with arthritis, as that problem has nothing to do with insulin. Both type 1 and type 2 diabetics are encouraged to continue monitoring their blood sugar, and once their levels are consistently lower, they can safely reduce their doses of synthetic insulin and other medications. The general benchmark for someone achieving healthy blood sugar is for their blood glucose to consistently be below 100 mg per deciliter after meals. This should be the advice issued from a standard physician already. If their metrics improved, less medication is required. The same is true with any medication that is meant to manage a symptom. If the symptom improves, the medication can be reduced. Some doctors will say that this means the drugs are working and should not be reduced. You know your own history. If you know that the drugs have not done much other than keep you from dying for several years, and suddenly you changed some foods and added some supplements and are now testing better, you know this is not an effect of the drugs. Doctors don't expect diabetes to get better. The way they describe chronic and degenerative disease in general, they don't understand reversal. Outside of infections and injuries, they generally expect health problems to get worse until the patient eventually dies, from that problem or another. The job of the doctor is to manage pain and inflammation and irregular heartbeats, not fix these problems. Remember that medicine is there to react to things, not to fix your lifestyle. Insurance doesn't pay for your lifestyle changes. It pays for doctors to do tests and write prescriptions and perform surgeries. 
If you get hit by a car, you will be in pain. It is appropriate to take drugs to ease the pain, for a while. Once you are healed, it is appropriate to stop. Despite the beliefs of some zealous doctors, I believe this same method should apply to most other health problems. It might seem that we are off topic here from type 1 diabetes, but it is likely that the type 1 patient is on more than just insulin. They are likely taking other drugs that are designed to manage blood sugar, the same types that a type 2 diabetic would be prescribed, and very likely to be taking something to regulate blood pressure as well. The person with type 1 must simply know that every drug other than insulin is not necessary and can safely be reduced with medical supervision as your symptoms improve. The type 1 situation gets a bit complicated when we factor in the possibility of a misdiagnosis. At this point in my career, I tend to assume that most cases of type 1 have been misdiagnosed. Of course, not every case is a misdiagnosis, but misdiagnosis is so rampant that my starting assumption is that the person does not actually have type 1. Misdiagnosis is part of the larger problem of overdiagnosing. The medical world seems to want to call every conceivable health problem a disease. Everything from obesity to addiction to depression is diagnosable and treatable according to doctors. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, 3.5 million American children were taking medication for Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder, ADHD, in a period between 2003 and 2011. Those 3.5 million are 69% of kids who were diagnosed with ADHD. In 2010, Consumer Reports said that more than 80% of children who are diagnosed with ADHD take prescription medications at some point to treat their symptoms. Apparently, most of them stayed on those drugs. What this means is that diagnosis leads to treatment. This leads to insurance payments and the medical system running smoothly. Overdiagnosis is a predictable result of this system. If you go to a doctor, their job is to diagnose you with something. Treatment follows diagnosis. Since the average person is eating foods that are messing them up, and eating from a food supply that is catastrophically deficient in essential micronutrients, the average person will have some kind of health problem. Since the medical establishment can't fix most of the problems you would go to a doctor about, cases accumulate. This is true for ADHD as well as diabetes. If doctors understood ADHD, then there would not be millions of kids on drugs to manage the problem, because they would have gotten rid of the problem. I hope this makes sense. Overdiagnosis is commonly talked about as if doctors and pharmaceutical companies are deliberately diagnosing people who, they say, may not qualify for the diagnosis. I don't think this is the whole story. Obviously, it is good for the industry if there are more things formally declared a disease as this opens up pharmaceutical treatment options. But most doctors, I assume, do want to help people. The shame is that they don't know how to deal with chronic and degenerative problems. ADHD is a chronic problem. To claim that overdiagnosis is only from the greed of the medical establishment is to dismiss the fact that there are indeed rampant behavioral problems in our society. I agree that these people do not deserve to be labeled with a disease. But I also believe that the rampant diagnoses are genuinely reflective of the scale of the problem. People continue to have problems, continue to go to doctors for help, and since the doctors only have tests, drugs, and surgeries, that is what continues to be offered. Drugs do not fix the behavioral and attention problems because those are likely just blood sugar problems, which are not fixed with drugs. Aside from the fact that the average person does have some diagnosable problem, True overdiagnosis is very common, in my experience, for type 1 diabetes. 
I have had so many people in recent years tell me that they were diagnosed later in life, well past puberty. This makes no sense. They clearly had enough insulin until that point. Something else is wrong. If an individual can achieve healthy blood sugar and they are able to completely eliminate their synthetic insulin, then they never had type 1 diabetes. If they can live without synthetic insulin, then they are making their own, and this means that there is no birth defect in the beta cells that produce insulin. So many people get off insulin entirely that I am convinced type 1 is as rare now as it was 100 years ago, proportionally. The rate of type 1 is said to be going up, and certainly diagnosis is going up. Based on the factors that we will cover in this book, such as the common eating of all the wrong foods and chronic nutrient deficiencies, we expect many problems like type 1 and type 2 to continue, unless the causative factors are corrected. In any case, many people who come to us with a diagnosis of type 1 are able to get off all medication and insulin. I've seen this happen under the supervision of the client's physician in less than a month. These people never had type 1 diabetes. Since the fact that type 1 is a birth defect is not accepted in the medical community, it is becoming increasingly common for people to be diagnosed with type 1 later in life. Of course, if it is a birth defect, then it cannot materialize later. Type 1 is a lack of insulin produced in the pancreas, and this might not be recognized in small children, but it is inevitably apparent by the time the child enters puberty. They may have been producing just enough insulin to cover them in their childhood, but the added demands of pubescent growth and the increased calorie intake associated with it also require more insulin. Therefore, many people are diagnosed with type 1 during puberty. I used to scratch my head at the idea of a full-grown adult being diagnosed with type 1 in their 20s, 30s, or even later. Other than incompetence, I couldn't understand why a doctor would come up with this diagnosis. Wouldn't they just be labeled a type 2 diabetic, which historically was called adult-onset diabetes? I now understand the method to their madness. People who have been given a late diagnosis are people who fail to respond to conventional medications that manage type 2 diabetes. The drugs are supposed to work for a type 2 diabetic. So, by the logic of mainstream medicine, the person cannot be a type 2 diabetic. It was supposed to be one disease, but since the medications don't work, they call it another. This seems to get doctors off the hook, but really, it just leaves the patient clueless about what is actually going on in the body. There is a reason that people might not be responding to medications. They aren't absorbing them. The same reason they aren't absorbing the meds would be the same reason they are not absorbing several nutrients. Digestive problems, caused by eating certain foods. As a person improves their digestion, they should be absorbing more of everything. Nutrients, caffeine, alcohol, as well as their pharmaceutical medications. We will cover this thoroughly in the chapters to follow. But the main thing to note here is that if you have been diagnosed with type 1 beyond puberty, then it is not type 1. There is also a chance of misdiagnosis even if you were labeled type 1 from birth. As a baby, you could have just been deficient in the minerals that cause type 2 diabetes. Misdiagnosis happens in lactose intolerance as well. When people tell me they are lactose intolerant, I usually assume it is not actually a birth defect. Misdiagnosis can be proven if the person can ever achieve healthy digestion without supplemental lactase. If they don't need lactase, then they are producing their own and thus they are not lactose intolerant. This happens all the time. People tell us that they are type 1 or lactose intolerant, commonly both, and yet they are able to achieve a healthy body and healthy digestion 
without synthetic insulin or supplemental enzymes. My first question for anyone when they ask about lactose intolerance is if they used to be able to eat dairy. Usually the answer is yes, and in that case we know that they used to be able to produce lactase, so they are not lactose intolerant. As we get older, we produce less lactase, but it's also common for young people to have problems digesting dairy. If you have been diagnosed as type 1 or lactose intolerant, this is your best case scenario, misdiagnosis. End note 4. By the way, sickle cell anemia is also an inborn error of metabolism, and like type 1 diabetes and lactose intolerance, it is completely preventable. For some reason, this problem is called sickle cell when it occurs in black people, but it is called thalassemia in white people. Who knows what they will diagnose you with if you are an Asian person or some other race. Similar to type 1, I assume the primary symptoms of their disease are a result of other nutritional factors, not the sickle cell defect itself, because I have seen many people achieve health and completely drop their medications and never have an episode requiring hospitalization. If they have this inborn error of metabolism, I remain confident that we can improve their quality of life on any metric we choose to examine and eliminate hospitalizations. This is particularly true with sickle cell because the main reason for hospitalization is pain. Pain meds do help, but the pain is probably not caused by the defect. It is probably caused by a dietary problem or nutrient deficiency. Return to text. Misdiagnosis is good news, because you are not stuck with an incorrectable problem. In the case of lactose intolerance, most people simply correct their digestion, and after a while, months, they can eat dairy without drama. In the case of a person diagnosed with type 1 later in life, their best case scenario is also in correcting the digestion, enabling them to absorb nutrients and everything else. The reason I brought up the enzymes when mentioning the pancreas is because we already know there is one problem in that organ, the inability to produce insulin. It is very natural to assume that there are more problems here, particularly in the production of digestive enzymes. Specifically, since enzymes are required to digest foods, I automatically assume that anyone diagnosed as a type 1 or type 2 diabetic also has a digestive problem, an underperforming digestive system. Understanding and correcting digestion is the first step to correcting a blood sugar problem. We will cover this in great detail, but first we must discuss the other blood sugar problems. Chapter Keys Type 1 diabetes is a birth defect. Type 1 may be a misdiagnosis. If it is a misdiagnosis, the blood sugar can get under control without medication or synthetic insulin. If it really is type 1, other markers of health can improve, and unrelated symptoms can be eliminated. Type 1 does not cause any other diseases. Any simultaneous diagnoses are caused by food and nutrient problems, not a lack of insulin. Type 1 diabetics can probably reduce their insulin as their overall symptoms improve, but will need some dose of synthetic insulin forever. Type 1 diabetics probably have a digestive problem, which is responsible for other symptoms of poor health. Chapter 3. Other Blood Sugar Problems Blood sugar problems come in several forms and have gone by many names in the past. Metabolic syndrome and syndrome X have both been popular versions of the same basic category of dysfunction. All of the various metabolic problems and corresponding symptoms have the same causes. 
There are differences in symptoms between people with high blood sugar, hyperglycemia, and low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. But both problems have the same core causes, and are both reversed with essentially the same strategies, though we will discuss some of the differences later in the book. Our list of blood sugar problems extends further than the mainstream currently recognizes. Our list includes many behavioral problems such as attention deficit disorder, ADD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, bipolar or manic depressive disorder, learning disabilities, as well as autism. Many people would be surprised to hear that we also consider cardiovascular disease and elevated blood cholesterol and triglycerides to be mostly rooted in blood sugar problems. Further, infertility, obesity, peripheral neuropathy, chronic fatigue, and a list of sleep-related issues such as narcolepsy, bedwetting, night sweats, night terrors or nightmares, sleepwalking, and grinding teeth at night are all on our list of symptoms of blood sugar problems. We will cover each as we move forward. Type 1 diabetes is the only blood sugar problem that stands on its own. Type 1 is an inability to produce enough insulin whereas the lack of insulin has nothing to do with the other blood sugar problems. With type 2 diabetes and all other blood sugar problems, there is plenty of insulin, but something is preventing the body from using the insulin. The giveaway for this fact is the term insulin resistance. There is insulin, but for reasons unknown to mainstream medicine, the body is resistant to it, or unable to use it. The mainstream medical world says that insulin resistance leads to diabetes, in other words, the symptoms we call type 2 diabetes are the result of the inability to properly utilize insulin. There is enough insulin, but something is missing that the body requires to use it. Type 2 diabetes used to be widely known as adult onset diabetes. It was called this because it tended to occur later in life. Type 1 was referred to as juvenile diabetes. Adult onset diabetes was changed to type 2 as more and more younger people were diagnosed with it. It is now common even for babies to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. It is estimated that there are around 34 million diabetics in America, which is roughly 1 in 10 people in the country. Canada has a similar proportion, with roughly 1 in every 14 citizens diagnosed as diabetic. Other Western countries are not far behind, with Australia near 1 in 20 and the United Kingdom around 1 in 16. Worldwide, it is estimated that there are over 400 million diabetics, and that diabetics will comprise half of the world population by 2040. We believe that this astonishing prediction can be completely prevented. According to the CDC, there are another 88 million American adults with pre-diabetes. Adding diabetics and pre-diabetics together, this amounts to roughly one-third of the American population, with a medically significant blood sugar problem. This number would be far higher if we also included the behavioral, sleep, and cardiovascular problems listed above. In practically every country, we can see that blood sugar problems are truly rampant, and the fastest growing age group for diagnosis is children. Diabetes used to be primarily a problem of the developed world, but is now spreading to every country with access to modern foods and lifestyles. China currently has the most diabetics, and the fastest growing diabetic population. India is in second place, Pakistan third, and then the US. Clearly, this has something to do with food and nutrition and potentially other environmental influences. Doctors today will blame at least some of the occurrence of blood sugar problems on genetics, but all you have to do is look at the rising trend of diabetes to understand that this couldn't possibly be true. 
Our genetics have not changed much in the last hundred years, yet the occurrence of diabetes and all other blood sugar problems are rising dramatically. In our camp, we say that habits run in families, and if those habits do not support and promote a healthy body, then people who share these habits will have similar health problems. Pre-diabetes is a relatively new term, but at this point we probably all know someone with this diagnosis. What this term tells us is that type 2 diabetes exists on a spectrum. Type 1 is not a spectrum problem. You don't have just a little bit of type 1 diabetes. You either have it or you do not. All spectrum problems can be reversed completely. If some people have it worse than others, then you can get better or worse yourself. Pre-diabetes is mostly a warning that your blood sugar problem is moving towards the severe end of the spectrum. The far end is full-on diabetes. This warning allows you to now take action, assuming you know what to do. Hopefully by the end of this book, you will know what to do. For the rest of this book, I am lumping all blood sugar problems, except type 1, together in the same group, because all of them can be reversed using the same strategies, and without any form of pharmaceutical or herbal medications or medical procedures of any kind. As for mood disorders and learning disabilities, in less severe cases, mood simply rises and falls with blood sugar fluctuations. Blood sugar, like blood pH and body temperature, is supposed to remain as stable as possible. When the body is healthy, there are no severe fluctuations in the blood level of anything. On the severe end of behavioral problems and learning disabilities, the blood sugar problem has caused, and coincides with, many physiological problems leading to a body and brain with starved cells. We will discuss many of these physical changes related to blood sugar, and you will also see how it is obvious that multiple problems appear when any disease is in a severe stage. If foods are messing up the body, leading to malabsorption of nutrients, leading to a nutrient deficiency disease such as a behavioral problem, then those same foods will likely be causing other deficiencies and tissue damage. When we think of diseases, we tend to think of the worst cases first. When autism comes to mind, we tend to think of the child who cannot speak and spends their days listlessly staring off into space, but that is hardly the typical patient. The typical kid diagnosed with ADD or autism is simply lacking in focus. They run around and drive their parents nuts, or they get in trouble at school. They are functional, but out of control. Similarly, we probably all know a diabetic who still eats the standard American diet. They're not in great shape, but they're alive. Their foot is not gangrenous. They aren't massively overweight. They look just like many other civilians on the street. This is because all blood sugar problems, except type 1, are spectrum problems. Some people are worse than others. In our terms, this means that some people are more deficient in some nutrients than other people. Some people are deficient in a wider variety of nutrients, by avoiding certain foods or food groups, or by eating foods that mess up their digestion, causing malabsorption. In our explanation of spectrum problems, we would also say that some people are more intolerant to common foods than others. Some people will have more severe symptoms, and probably a wider variety of symptoms. My point here is that anytime you think of someone with severe diabetes, cancer, autism, bipolar, lupus, etc., we assume these people will be severely deficient in several nutrients and doing several things wrong with their foods. Too much of some bad foods, not enough of some good foods. And we also assume that these people will have multiple other problems. Just like nutrient deficiencies don't really exist independently, neither do health problems. 
The severely autistic child will likely also have tooth cavities, obvious metabolic or digestive problems, food intolerances or picky eating, probably a skin or lung problem, probably a chronic infection problem like ear, sinus, or urinary tract, and the list could go on. This is where the overdiagnosis problem really comes into play. In real life, we rarely see people with one problem. Mainstream medicine breaks everything down into parts. The formal philosophy used by standard, or allopathic medicine, is called reductionism. This is how we have had health problems reduced to genetic probabilities and cellular descriptions, rather than a broad understanding of the development of disease. Every other school of medicine, the alternative fields of which I am part, believe in and practice holism. Holism, as the name implies, is a health philosophy that considers the whole body and its environment. Following the reductionist philosophies, we have many people who are given several diagnoses for different problems in their body. They might have psoriasis as well as depression and prediabetes. In the worst case, they may be treated for all of these simultaneously, so someone can be on five drugs for five different problems. We believe the mistake is in believing that these are separate problems. We believe that these are different symptoms of the same underlying problems. This means that there is no sense in treating them as separate. An infection with malaria is separate from any existing health problem like arthritis or headaches. It is separate because it is treated separately. The things that cause arthritis and headaches do not cause malaria. Non-infectious diseases are not separate if they are caused by the same food and nutrient problems. Overdiagnosis leads to overtreatment, particularly in these people with numerous health problems. If licensed medical practitioners followed holistic principles, they would clearly see that some problems in the food and nutrition, or some other thing like a pathogen or poison, is obviously causing multiple problems. It is not that the lupus and the acne need to be treated separately. The cause of the unhealthy body needs to be identified and corrected. This is relevant for anyone with any blood sugar problem. Bedwetting doesn't exist on its own. It's a symptom of a blood sugar problem, and a person who is wetting the bed is very likely to have other symptoms of a blood sugar problem, like a behavioral problem. This is why the subtitle of this book is Simple Strategies to Conquer Almost Any Health Problem. Because, by doing the things that you would need to do to correct a blood sugar problem, changing foods and adding nutrients, you are by default doing the things that you would need to do to have healthy skin, lungs, brain, sleep, liver, hormones, energy, and so on. Chapter Keys Type 2 diabetes and all other blood sugar problems, except type 1 diabetes, have nothing to do with a lack of insulin. Blood sugar problems are rising dramatically worldwide, proving that the problem is not genetic. Genetics haven't changed, but our diets and lifestyles have. All blood sugar problems other than type 1 diabetes are caused by food problems and nutrient deficiencies. Blood sugar problems can range from metabolic symptoms such as type 2 diabetes and obesity, to behavioral problems such as ADD and autism, as well as physical problems such as cardiovascular problems and neuropathy. Chapter 4. Digestion. A lot of people come to us with a huge range of problems. No matter what the problem is, we give them all the same basic food advice. Most of our avoid list has to do with foods that damage the body, but the first group on our list, problematic grains, 
is there because these foods are the main cause of digestive problems. Getting rid of these greens is key to improving digestion, and in many cases I don't expect a result with any other part of the program unless these greens are removed. This is because digestive problems can cause absorption problems. If your health problem, such as type 2 diabetes, is ultimately explained as a nutrient deficiency, and you buy those missing nutrients, they won't be absorbed properly if the digestion is messed up. I have seen many people achieve healthy blood sugar by correcting their digestion alone, because suddenly they could absorb nutrients. As mentioned, as digestion improves, it is likely that more of everything will be absorbed. This means that the person will probably not be able to tolerate as much coffee or alcohol as they used to, but it also means that they should pay close attention if they are taking any pharmaceutical medications, because they will now be absorbing more of it. At the cellular level, the body needs some key nutrients to facilitate insulin in the job of getting glucose into cells, and cells being able to use that energy and handle the waste involved. These details will be explained more as we go on, but you must know that although digestive problems can cause nutrient deficiencies, nutrient deficiency in our modern food supply is a very large problem on its own. Nutrient deficiencies are practically guaranteed in our modern world, and therefore it is not guaranteed that you have a digestive problem if you have been diagnosed with a blood sugar problem, but it is very likely. Most people who come to us with any problem also have a digestive problem. You also do not need to be overweight to have a digestive problem. Skinny people can often eat a lot of food. We presume the reason they're not gaining weight is because of malabsorption. This is how a digestive or nutrient deficiency problem could cause both high or low blood sugar, or both overactive or underactive thyroid, the tree can fall in either direction, and so someone with a digestive problem can be either over or underweight. Even if you think your digestion is fine, the advice in this chapter will still improve it. If you are over or underweight, I would definitely recommend doing everything in this chapter. When we think of digestion, we tend to think of the stomach or the intestines, but digestion actually starts in the brain. When you think about eating, you start to secrete several enzymes through the saliva. Remember that an enzyme is a catalyst, and these salival enzymes are the first stage in priming your food for further digestion. One of the simplest things that anyone can do to begin to improve their digestion is to better utilize the brain and mouth. In the modern world, we tend to be pressed for time, and many people very simply do not put enough conscious attention to their eating. Something as simple as thinking about the food before you eat can improve digestion. We also tend to eat too quickly. If we rush into food, we haven't given our body sufficient time to secrete enough enzymes for optimal absorption. And if we rush the actual eating process, we probably also underchew our food. There is a growing movement out there called slow food, and I am a huge fan of the concept. It is also sometimes called mindful eating or conscious eating. Slowing down has multiple benefits. First, it improves digestion by increasing the time that your food is in contact with the salival enzymes. Second, chewing food slowly increases the level of breakdown occurring in the mouth before the food enters the stomach. Third, when we slow our eating down, invariably we should end up eating less food overall. If we eat too quickly, we can easily eat more than our body can handle because it hasn't had time to signal the brain that we are full. The stomach is only about the size of a closed fist, and though it will expand if you force it to, this is not helping your digestion at all. 
The stomach is the size that it is because the intestines are the size that they are, and all of their relative sizes are there to deal with the amount of food that can fit in the stomach. If you overload the stomach, you will have a problem. Maybe stomach pain, or indigestion, or an intestinal problem. More likely is that the body will be forcing this oversized mass of food through the system, rather than breaking it down into fine particles for digestion. A large mass of food is going to have a lot of nutrients trapped in the mass that will not be absorbed into the blood. This means that overeating is just literally a waste of food, as we won't be absorbing much of it, and all of that digestion and activity costs our body energy and nutrients. This vicious cycle can provoke or exacerbate metabolic syndrome because the body is hungry in the first place for nutrients. The overeating is the symptom of this craving. The ravenous eater eats large portions which are largely not absorbed and are very costly to the body. The body remains hungry for these nutrients, overeating continues, and the cycle repeats. A final benefit to slowing down and chewing more is that we can actually enjoy our food more. Rather than only enjoying each bite for a few seconds, extended chewing gives us more time to relish the flavors of the food, and moving it around the mouth allows the different types of taste buds, which are located in different parts of the mouth, to experience the full range of flavor in the food. The general advice is to try to chew each mouthful somewhere between 15 and 30 times before swallowing. If you pay attention to your next meal at regular eating speed, you'll probably be surprised at how little you are actually chewing the food. Help your stomach out. Do more of the work in the mouth. Remember that our aim in all of this is to be healthy, and part of that, I do believe, is to have a healthy relationship with our food. Slow eating can be considered a form of meditation, which itself helps to reduce stress and improve well-being. Think about your food well before eating. Say grace or pray in front of it before you eat. And while you are smelling it and anticipating it, which produces yet more saliva and gastric juices for digestion. Eat slowly, chew thoroughly, move the food around in your mouth, and savor the flavors and textures. Take a break if you feel like it, listen to your body, and if you are full, stop eating. Compare the ritualistic approach above to unconsciously shoveling potato chips in the mouth while the mind focuses on something else, such as television. If we cut the mind out of the eating process, we are very likely to be creating a digestive problem, or at the very least, we will not be maximizing the nutritional and psychological benefits of food. Another major problem in digestion is the types of foods we actually eat. Processed foods are bad for a number of reasons, including causing digestive problems. Another reason ties into this mindful eating concept. The act of cooking already works with mindful eating. You cannot help but think about and anticipate the food strongly before it is even done cooking. By the time it is ready, your body is likely ready to digest it. Processed foods, on the other hand, are generally much faster to prepare than real whole foods, generally much less nutritious, and can directly cause digestion problems by irritating or damaging the intestines. Even a processed, packaged salad at a coffee shop, though it is not as bad as a pizza, it doesn't provide any time to prepare the body to digest it. Just because you are hungry does not mean that your body is prepared to digest. While navigating life to and from work or school, or eating quickly on a lunch break, our brains and bodies are engaged in a form of stress that does not promote rest, relaxation, or digestion. I think 30-minute lunch breaks should be illegal. 
It is simply not enough time to disengage and focus on a slow, enjoyable meal with healthy digestion. We all know the feeling of coming home from an exhausting day of work or school, and we find ourselves still cranked up with nervous energy. We were falling asleep on the train, but now we're cleaning the garage. This is not a good time to eat, but the act of cooking can be enough time to relax, to think about cooking and eating instead of work or what we have to do tomorrow. This might sound too specific to be relevant to something like diabetes, but we are a result of our habits, and how we eat will have a lot to do with whether we are healthy or not. If you eat fast things four times a day, you will have health problems. Examples of a fast breakfast. Cereal, bagel, muffin, packaged toaster pastry, cold leftover pizza, oatmeal, fruit. I had to include fruit to be fair. You can have fruit for breakfast, but everything else on the average menu for a quick bite before the day starts is invariably a bad food. The fastness of it just adds to the problem. In the worst case, a person grabs a sandwich from a fast food restaurant on the way to work. They wait in a frustrating line, listening to annoying morning radio, and quickly eat the thing on their lap while navigating traffic. This is very much part of an average modern lifestyle. I've always thought that one of the best breakfasts was eggs, and that's our advice in the business. Protein for breakfast. Eggs don't take a long time to cook, but even the few minutes standing in front of it, looking at it, smelling it, thinking about it, and anticipating it, is enough to secrete enzymes. I often recommend cooking extra dinner, as that is the meal we tend to put the most time and effort into, as well as better ingredients and generally more substantial foods. You're not going to make a roasted turkey for breakfast, but you can heat that up in the morning, and that will take a few minutes that you can use to think about your upcoming event of eating. At the same time that the body is secreting salival enzymes, it is also preparing and releasing gastric juices into the stomach which is yet another benefit of slowing down and thinking about the food well before actually sitting down to eat. I would include some general rules here. Never eat in a hurry. Never eat in a moving car. And if you are stressed, try to deal with that before you eat. Sit down and take your time. I like to watch TV while eating, but I try to pay more attention to the food than to what I'm watching. You don't have to be perfect. I'm not. But be mindful. Wait until you get to your destination to eat, or take a break from the road to pull over and eat. If you are very stressed, try to calm down. Take some deep, full, slow breaths. Meditate. Think happy thoughts before eating. Think about what you're grateful for instead of what is stressing you out. If your stress is chronic, you must take steps to change that. If your job is stressing you constantly, find ways to reduce that stress. In short, if you are upset, try to deal with that before eating. This book isn't about stress, but we must understand that there are really only two major modes for the body. The first is fight or flight, also known as the sympathetic nervous system. The other is rest and digest, or rest and restore, also known as the parasympathetic nervous system. Put simply, if the body is stressed, it is not digesting properly. When you're hyped up, your blood is directed away from the digestive system. Prayer has developed across cultures, commonly before eating. Having a quiet moment and breathing through the nose activates the parasympathetic nervous system, the one that promotes digestion. Whether we modern people like it or not, all of the longest-lived populations are religious in some way. 
the Hunza people in the mountains of Pakistan, long thought of as the longest-lived people on earth, have been their own form of Muslims since before Europeans made contact with them. These long-lived places are commonly called blue zones. The weirdest blue zone, to me, has always been Loma Linda, California, which is apparently on the list only because of the religious practice of modest eating by the Seventh-day Adventists who live in Loma Linda. There isn't any difference in the food or nutrient availability in Loma Linda than in Los Angeles 60 miles away, but the difference in habits and health is evident. Both the sympathetic and parasympathetic modes are important. Without stress, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning or defend ourselves from imminent threats. But our modern society tends to keep us in this sympathetic mode more or less all of the time. If our lives are busy or stressful, we must consciously induce the rest and digest mode, or we will simply not digest properly. As stated, one of the benefits to slow eating is that mindfulness itself is a form of relaxation. If you're not into saying grace before eating or cooking your own meals, then at minimum I recommend closing your eyes and taking several deep, slow breaths while thinking about the food you are about to enjoy. Fill the lungs slowly and completely, and completely expel it before the next breath. Just a few deep, meditative breaths should help you relax instantaneously. After the mouth, the next stage of digestion is the stomach. Stomach acid is primarily hydrochloric acid, and it is supposed to be strong enough to digest meat down to the bone. The primary source of the chloride in this hydrochloric acid is salt, sodium chloride. One of the most destructive ideas that has ever been introduced into the health arena is that salt is bad for us. Salt is essential for all life. There is no microbe or creature on earth that can survive without salt. Salt has been one of the most important resources for all of human history. Civilization has basically always revolved around salt. The word salary derives from salt, because Roman soldiers were said to have sometimes been paid in salt instead of money. This makes perfect sense for soldiers, as they could pillage all the food they want, but they couldn't digest it properly without salt. As recent as the War of 1812, American soldiers in the field were paid in salt brine. We have discovered salt production in Neolithic settlements all over the world. The phrase, all roads lead to Rome, very likely referred to salt roads, built specifically to facilitate the importation of salt into the capital. Many human settlements are actually named after salt, especially towns with the suffix wick or witch in the British Isles, such as Northwich, Middlewich, Netherwich, and so on. This trend also continues into the European continent, with cities such as Munich, said to be founded due to its location along a salt road, and its rise in prominence and wealth being due to taxing the salt that passed through the territory. Salt was known to be traded for human slaves in Africa, such was its value. Countless wars have been waged over salt and salt-producing territories. Entire empires were founded on salt production or taxation, such as the Kingdom of Poland. Of course, we have all heard of Mahatma Gandhi's famous salt march, undermining the salt tax, practically ending the British imperial rule in India. I mention all of this merely in an attempt to break the idea that salt is bad for us. There is no one single food that all humans require, except salt. You can get vitamins from a variety of foods. You don't need any single one of them specifically, but everyone needs salt. Every animal and human has a built-in salt meter, 
which is extremely sensitive and responds rapidly to the changing salt levels in the body. There isn't a farmer on earth that could remain profitable without providing their animals with all the salt they wanted. In the case of salt, the words want and need are synonymous. A cow wants exactly as much salt as it needs, and it will lick the salt block until exactly that point. Once it has reached its desired level, you could not force the animal to take another lick. It is the same with humans. Our salt meter quickly tells us when something has become too salty, and unfortunately, most people fall far short of that requirement on a daily basis. This is particularly bad in today's health-conscious people. A random civilian who eats potato chips, cheeseburgers, and soda will be getting plenty of salt. They will have other health problems, but probably not salt deficiency. I see salt deficiency most obviously in people who eat well. They eat real, organic food, handmade with love, but they fail to put enough salt on it. Without enough salt, every day, we will simply not have a properly functioning digestive system. Without proper digestion, we will simply not have an optimally healthy body. Chloride is only found naturally in foods in small quantities. We must get the rest from salt. One of the most effective, free strategies that we have in our nutritional toolkit is to teach people about the proper use of salt. Footnote 2. By the way, I am not the only practitioner who has used salt to great effectiveness. Hippocrates encouraged his fellow healers to utilize salt water to heal various ailments, usually via submersion in seawater. I have lived in a blue zone, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and salt is practically their only remedy for everything from the flu to a rash to a sting from a stingray. Return to text. The general rule is to salt to taste. That means, add salt to your water and food until you can just barely taste the salt. We cannot give you the exact amount of salt that you need per day because your requirement should change by the second. If you exert yourself more, sweat more, eat more, or drink more, you will also require more salt. If your immune system is battling something, you will require more salt. Hence why your grandmother probably made you salty broth when you were sick. One morning you might only need a few taps of the salt shaker before you can taste it, and the next morning you might need ten times that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since I expect that most people who come to us will have been chronically deficient in salt for an extended period, I always recommend something we call the salt flush. The idea is to make a glass of extremely salty water. Normally we recommend three heaping tablespoons of salt in any size glass of water. 
Neither the amount of water nor the amount of salt is that important. But the idea is to have a lot of salt with a little bit of water. So it is very salty. This should be the saltiest thing you've ever tasted. Saltier than seawater. The point is to top up the salt in the body to the point where any more salt tastes too salty. All the time people tell me that they consume plenty of salt, yet they're able to drink a significant portion of this super salty mix, or even all of it. They are instructed to take tiny sips, because that is all someone should be able to do, but they can take gulps. This means that they were extraordinarily low on salt. Ideally, we all should only be able to take a few sips of this mixture before it is repulsively salty. If we are very low, this mix will taste fantastic. They might even be the most satisfying sips you've ever tasted. This is our salt meter in action. Salt tastes phenomenal, right up until the point that it is repulsive. Footnote 3. If you are reading this to help a baby or young child with a blood sugar or digestion problem, try covering a plate in a layer of salt. Cut up some fresh fruit and dip it on the plate. Let the child copy you. They should naturally take as much as they need and then stop. Return to text. Since so many people consciously avoid salt, particularly in America and the Commonwealth countries, their food invariably tastes bland and unsatisfying. What do you do in America when your food is boring? You put sauces on it. Most of these sauces are sugar-based, and of course this is relevant in a discussion about blood sugar. Ironically, most of these sugary and oily sauces also come with a hefty dose of salt. Before we move on to the next stage of digestion, I must mention that this stomach acid thing is important not just for breaking down food in the stomach. The strong acidity is also required as a primer for the absorption of many of the most important dietary nutrients such as iron and calcium. If these nutrients fall into a stomach that isn't acidic enough, they won't be absorbed properly. At the root of a blood sugar problem is a lack of one or more nutrients that are required for the body to use insulin and other metabolic functions. Nutrient deficiencies can happen on their own, by our modern food and lifestyles lacking in nutrients, but digestive problems greatly exacerbate the existing problem. The very first thing to do to ensure better absorption of nutrients is to ensure that you are consuming enough salt. I've already mentioned that people with blood sugar problems tend to also have other problems, and anemia is one of them. In my experience, anemia is rarely an actual iron deficiency. This is proven by the many people who already take iron supplements, because their doctor told them they were anemic. In addition, the average person eats processed food and meat. Processed food tends to have added iron, and meat already has iron. They take the iron, but they are still anemic and they still have blood sugar or blood pressure problems and so on. If their stomach acid isn't acidic enough, they won't be absorbing the iron from food or supplements. In the stomach, food is supposed to be broken down into its constituent components. Specifically, this is where proteins are supposed to be broken down into the individual amino acids that the larger protein is built from. This broken down food is released from the stomach into the first part of the small intestine, called the duodenum. Footnote 4. This organ is commonly pronounced two ways, either duodenum or duodenum. Return to text. Fatty foods are broken down in the stomach, but the individual fatty acids will mostly be separated in the intestines. 
In the duodenum, the broken down food is met with a bath of digestive enzymes from both the liver and the pancreas, as well as bile from the gallbladder. The liver produces this bile, which is held in the gallbladder for release into the duodenum. Gall is an old word for bile. We already know about enzymes, and you can gauge how important enzymes are by how many organs work to produce them. Saliva, stomach, liver, pancreas, and even the small intestine produces some enzymes. But this bile component is extremely important as well. The standard explanation of the purpose of bile is that it breaks down fats into its constituent fatty acids and carries away waste through the intestines and out of the system. So, without bile, fats aren't properly separated. Acid breaks down protein. But like soap removes fat from household dishes, bile separates fats in the human body. But there is an even more important function of this bile. When the mostly digested food leaves the stomach and enters the duodenum, it is highly acidic, because stomach acid is supposed to be highly acidic. This bile in the duodenum converts this material to alkaline. The food has now been chemically primed twice, once with an acid and now with a base. The small intestine is lined with tiny, half a millimeter to one millimeter, finger-like structures called villi billions of them. These villi are themselves covered in even smaller finger-like structures called microvilli. The purpose of these villi and microvilli are to increase the surface area of the intestine, because this is where nutrients are absorbed into the bloodstream. More surface area means more room for absorption. We often describe the small intestine like a shaggy carpet, inverted in a tube. If you've ever beaten an old carpet, you know it can hold a lot of dust, hair, dirt, insect carcasses, and other debris. It holds so much because of all that surface area between and around the individual strands of fabric. Similarly, forest-like distribution of villi provide ample room for particles to make contact with a villi and be absorbed into the blood. In the villi, the blood capillaries are close to the surface, and the skin on these villi are very thin, so they can pass nutrients directly into the blood. Here there are also small lymphatic vessels, there to obtain fats from the villi. We will talk more about fats in later chapters, but we have already seen that fats are treated somewhat differently in the body, being broken down separately and absorbed into a separate system, as amino acids and vitamins and minerals will be put into the blood. The lymphatic system is known as the sewage system of the body, helping to maintain fluid levels of the body by removing excess stuff from the blood including waste. Together, the blood and the lymph are responsible for transporting not just nutrients and waste, but also cells that respond to immune threats. A capillary is just a word for a very tiny blood vessel. Vessels start large at the heart, where they are called arteries. Then they get smaller as they move outward toward every organ in the body, and eventually to every single cell in the body. Blood vessels are called arteries when they're big, veins or vessels when they are medium-sized, and capillaries when they are tiny. It's all part of the same highway system, circulating the body and feeding each cell nutrients, as well as transporting waste out of the cells, into the lymph, and ultimately out of the system. There are a few things that can go wrong at this point in the digestion. If food is insufficiently broken down in the beginning stages of digestion, then we will have large undigested food particles in the intestines. If proteins are not correctly broken down into amino acids, and fats are not correctly broken down into fatty acids, then these large particles may enter the blood through the villi, 
this is a big problem. The body is not supposed to have entire unbroken proteins or fats in the bloodstream. The body may, correctly, identify these particles as a threat. If a pathogen were to find itself in the bloodstream, a healthy body would attack that pathogen, swarming it with white blood cells and platelets. White blood cells are the immune response to a threat. Platelets bind together to form clots in order to address damaged tissues. All of this action adds up to what we in the business call dirty blood, or sticky blood. This response will save your life if it is a pathogen. But when the body is mobilizing this immune response to food, it can be a major and chronic problem, producing many symptoms ranging from brain fog and sluggishness to outright immune failure. This dirty blood phenomenon can appear exactly like the symptoms that are commonly called an autoimmune disease. The body is constantly in a state of immune response, but it is responding to food in the blood, not a pathogen. The mistake is in thinking that the body is attacking itself. It is not attacking itself. It is attacking undigested food particles in the blood. This is why it is so important to break down the food sufficiently before it enters the intestines. Salivate, chew, consume enough salt, and this should not be a problem. There can still be a problem here if we simply eat too much food. This bile enzyme bath is quantitative. The food needs to be coated in this mixture. If there is too much food, your body can produce the amount of bile and enzymes that it is supposed to and still fall short. The human body isn't designed to digest huge portions of food all at once. An elephant or horse body is. They have bigger stomachs, bigger intestines, and more bacteria and other microorganisms to help break it all down. When portion sizes are too big, it is possible to be short on enzymes and bile, creating the potential for undigested food particles to enter the blood. Slower eating and smaller portions should eliminate this possibility. If the food particles are met with insufficient bile, the food remains highly acidic. This can damage the delicate villi. The stomach has a protective lining to prevent damage from stomach acid, but the rest of the body does not. Obviously, damaging the organs that absorb nutrients is not a good idea. There are foods that can damage the villi as well, and we will discuss them in the next chapter. One more big thing that can potentially go wrong here. An underperforming liver may not produce enough bile. The liver is one of the most remarkable organs in the body. It can regrow itself even if it is damaged or removed almost entirely. 90% or even more. The liver performs numerous functions that are beyond the scope of this book to describe. But if it is not healthy, it is not going to do all of its jobs properly. I am attempting to give you a list of strategies that you can do yourself, for free or cheaply. But I must mention that liver function is dependent on multiple nutrients that are catastrophically lacking in our modern food system. Most health problems are caused by nutrient deficiencies, and both an underperforming liver and the root of blood sugar problems are nutrient deficiencies. I will explain this further as we continue, but for now you must know that it is impossible to have a completely healthy body without some outside supplemental sources of essential nutrients, especially the minerals. One thing you can do to aid the liver in this bile enzyme process is to supplement with a digestive enzyme product. I have included the label of our main enzyme product, and if you choose not to buy our product, you can look for one that has a similar recipe. You can also find our products on my website, wallachswarriors.ca. You should be able to find a suitable digestive enzyme product in any country in the world, 
and it should cost you less than a dollar a day to boost your enzymes and bile supplementally. If you have had your gallbladder removed, you will need to use a digestive enzyme supplementally every day for the rest of your life, because there is no longer a route for the bile produced in your liver to make it into the duodenum. Without supplemental bile and the accompanying enzymes, you won't be able to digest fats correctly. Anyone with a digestive problem and anyone over or underweight should use digestive enzymes short term, one to three months. The body can produce its own enzymes and bile, and though it is beneficial to help this process out while you are fixing the digestion, it is not necessary to continue forever. There is no harm from taking digestive enzymes long term. Theoretically, taking enzymes will decrease the amount of enzymes that your body makes itself, but we also tend to produce less ourselves as we get older. This is similar to using topical moisturizers on the skin. The signaling molecules in your skin tell your body that it is already moist, and so the body doesn't bother producing its own oils. Enzymes are also present in some foods, especially fruits and vegetables, and some cheeses and other dairy products such as kefir and yogurt. Using a microwave oven will destroy most or all enzymes in the food. Usually we say that we don't really care about this, because the body produces its own enzymes. But nature has made digestion easier for us by providing extra enzymes in some foods, and there is no reason to disrupt that. Footnote 6. There is no food that must be cooked in a microwave anyway, and most people use a microwave to cook processed food, which we would not recommend eating at all. Heat leftovers up on a pan or in a conventional oven, toaster oven, or just eat it cold. Return to text. We have reached the final stages of digestion, and there are only a few more things to mention before we move on. Most of the digestion and absorption of nutrients has already taken place before food reaches the large intestine. What's left is mostly plant fiber, which is one of the more difficult macronutrients to digest, as well as water, salt, bile, and dead cells that have shed from the intestinal lining. This fibrous mixture is the primary source of food for the good bacteria in our guts and most of that bacteria is in the large intestine. These microorganisms are the final stage of food breakdown and nutrient extraction before the waste exits the system, so consuming plant fiber is part of what it means to have healthy digestion. The good bacteria in our guts are known as probiotics, and they have several beneficial roles in our body, particularly for the final stages of digestion in the small and large intestines. There are other microorganisms all throughout the gut, but most are in the large intestine. There are at least tens of thousands of different species of microorganisms in your body at all times. There are at least 900 species in your nostrils, at least 800 on the inside of your cheek, and over 30,000 in the intestines. Together, these colonies of bacteria, viruses, and protozoa, which are tiny animals, comprise what we call the microbiome. We can have a healthy, balanced microbiome that supports a healthy digestive and immune system, or an unhealthy one prone to digestive and immune problems. Supporting a healthy microbiome means doing anything that helps the good bacteria, including consuming more probiotics, eating enough fiber, and properly digesting our food before it reaches the intestines. One of the more important functions of the microbiome is the protective role from bad bacteria. The good guys keep the bad guys away, or keep them in low numbers. For example, everyone seems to know that E. coli is bad, yet this bacterium is naturally found in our intestines. In fact, E. coli is thought to have a protective role, providing resistance against pathogenic organisms.
Most of the time, E. coli strains do not harm us, and some are beneficial. E. coli in your colon, your large intestine, produces vitamin K for you. E. coli in all bacteria produce toxins, and though we can handle normal amounts of this, having healthy probiotic gut flora... Footnote 7. I never really liked the word flora to describe our microbiome, but it is commonly used. Technically, flora are plants and fauna are animals. In my opinion, our microbiome is more properly described as our gut fauna. Return to text. Having healthy probiotic gut flora helps keep the E. coli levels under control. You don't need to do anything about this balancing act, other than ensure you are promoting a healthy microbiome. Problematic grains, which we will discuss in the food chapter, as well as too many carbohydrates and sugars, all contribute to an unhealthy microbiome because it is said that these foods feed the bad bacteria. Probiotics do keep the bad guys in check, but they can be overwhelmed if the bad guys are gorging on sugars and multiplying rapidly. Probiotics are supposed to outnumber the bad guys, but your eating can tilt that balance. The mainstream medical world now has numerous studies showing a reduction in fasting blood sugar with the use of multi-species probiotics. I did mention that there are slight differences between low and high blood sugar, and this probiotic result is one of them. There is insufficient evidence to conclude that probiotic supplementation improves low blood sugar, yet the results for high blood sugar are impressive. To me, this means that someone with high blood sugar is more likely to have a digestive problem than someone with low blood sugar. I believe that high blood sugar is a symptom of a more extreme and more chronic nutrient deficiency. Low blood sugar can happen alongside something acute like dehydration and can be corrected quickly. Probiotic products with multiple bacterial strains have shown effectiveness, whereas single strain studies usually do not. This makes sense because there are numerous species of good bacteria in our guts. It seems to require the proper quantity and diversity of good bacteria to do their jobs properly. It's a communal effort. We have a symbiotic relationship with the flora in our bodies. They can't live without us, and we can't live without them. It is commonly stated that there are actually more bacterial, virus, and protozoa cells in our bodies than there are human cells. A large part of our body is actually not our body. It is the bodies of microorganisms. Probiotics alone, without any other nutritional changes, have been shown to improve digestion. And from experience, I can attest to this. Probiotics are one of the single most beneficial strategies to improve overall health, and particularly digestion. Probiotics can be eaten, or supplemented, or both. There are a few types of bacteria that can work wonders for most people, yet cause negative reactions in others. These negative reactions resemble common digestive distress, including bloating, cramping, diarrhea, constipation, itchiness, and so on. If this happens, simply try another product with a different range of bacterial species. Typical foods containing probiotics are yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, pickles, traditional buttermilk, and cheeses that contain live cultures or active cultures on the label. I left fermented soy products like miso and tempeh off of the list because we generally do not recommend consuming soy products. If you must eat soy, choose organic soy because soy that is not organic is known to have much higher concentrations of pesticides than other non-organic food. Though there is very little good data on the matter, we do not believe it is a good idea to consume large doses of pesticides. P 
pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides are all designed to kill bacteria and other small organisms. And since your body is full of these same types of microorganisms, it is logically not a good idea to introduce compounds designed to kill them. There is no upper limit on how many fermented foods you can eat, or how many probiotics you can supplement with. If you get a negative reaction, it is not dose-dependent. You will get the reaction from a small amount. Remember that we include many behavioral problems on our list of potential blood sugar problems. Digestive problems can cause blood sugar problems largely because of the issues discussed above which can cause both malabsorption of nutrients and immune responses. While there is actually ample evidence that probiotics alone can relieve many of the behavioral problems on our blood sugar list, as well as other problems you might think are unrelated. Both animal and human studies find that probiotic supplements can improve some mental health disorders. Probiotics have been shown to improve anxiety, depression, autism, obsessive-compulsive disorder, stress, and general health. I also expect improvement in these categories alongside any blood sugar improvement, so they are definitely connected. We have mentioned that bile helps to break down food in the intestines, and it is also known that probiotics help to break down the bile. If the bile is not broken down, there is a risk of it being absorbed into the blood through the villi. Similar to undigested food particles, this bile in the blood can cause dirty blood. We have also mentioned the connection between blood sugar and blood cholesterol and triglycerides. And again, probiotics have been shown to improve blood cholesterol levels. One of the great things about our internal floral colonies is that they largely sustain themselves. If we do something to throw off the balance, such as eat the wrong foods for an extended period, or consume antibiotics, then it is very wise to help these colonies regenerate by consuming more probiotics in food or and supplements. This is already an incredible list of benefits from one simple strategy, and yet there is more. Probiotics have been shown to improve the immune system and help with weight loss. Hopefully all of this makes perfect sense at this point. Finally, probiotics are also shown to improve skin conditions such as eczema, though the evidence is not as strong as the conditions above. If you ask me on a regular day what causes eczema or asthma, I will say probably a digestive problem. Just like it is not a guarantee that you will have a digestive problem if you have a blood sugar problem, it is also not a guarantee that a digestive problem is causing a skin problem. But in my experience, most people with a skin problem do have a digestive problem and won't have clear skin until they correct their digestion. Eczema and other skin problems are rooted in nutrient deficiencies, particularly in the fatty nutrients, which are key to skin and brain health, along with numerous other systems in the body. This is because the essential fatty acids, as well as cholesterol, and the fat-soluble vitamins, D, E, A, and K, are very large compared to other essential nutrients like minerals. Vitamins and fatty acids are chains of elements, whereas plant-derived minerals can be a single particle. Since they are larger, these are the first nutrients affected by any absorption problem. Having said all of this, we are down to my final standard recommendation for fixing a digestive problem. Diatomaceous earth is flour made from diatoms, which are single-celled organisms with shells. Sea shells in general, whether from a scallop, an oyster, or a diatom, are known to be strongly antimicrobial. People often ask if consuming something antimicrobial will also harm our good bacteria, but the strange answer is no. Shell flowers and other natural antimicrobials, such as silver, seem to have a magic ability to selectively disrupt only the bad guys. No one knows why or how exactly this happens, 
for it seems to require an intelligence that silver or shells couldn't possibly have. The world is weirder than we know. Food-grade diatomaceous earth is one of the world's cheapest, widely available, and most effective health products. You can buy it in any country, and it should only cost 10 US dollars per pound or less. The first thing it will do is help to clear out excess stuff in the intestines, and the second thing it will do is help to kill any pathogens in the system. It is said to do both of these things electrically. The shell flower has an electrical charge, and it attracts particles and pathogens to it as it rolls through the system. That is why large servings are recommended, because you want a big clump of it traveling through you and attracting stuff. Just like a mop can only clean up so much floor before you have to change the water, a clump of DE can only clean up so much in your digestive tract. This is why continual use for one to three months is recommended at the start. You probably have a lot more in you than one dose can pick up. When first using diatomaceous earth, I recommend two heaping tablespoons per serving, two or three times daily. Since it is not a nutrient needing to be digested, it doesn't matter whether it is taken with meals or not. Footnote 8. Supplements are generally best taken with meals. Some nutrients, such as zinc and selenium, can cause nausea when taken on an empty stomach. When eating, the body is supposed to have generated the numerous enzymes and gastric juices discussed in this chapter. These things are there, in part, to chemically alter nutrients from foods so those nutrients can be absorbed. This is why supplement absorption is maximized when taken with food. Return to text. Shell flour is said to work partially because of its electrical charge, and allowing metal to come into contact with it can neutralize that charge. Apparently stainless steel does not affect the charge, but I would advise using plastic, wood, or glass instead of stainless steel, both for the cup and the stir stick, just to be sure. Don't breathe the dust when stirring it. An immediate result could be a near-instant stimulation of the bowels, but that is not guaranteed. For best results, use it consistently for one to three months, and after that, you can use it periodically as needed. After you've used it for a while, you should know exactly what it does, and you can judge for yourself when you need it. Footnote 9. To me, as needed means if you eat too much food one day and feel discomfort, take some diatomaceous earth that day and the next. Also, if you see any sign of a fungal infection, such as small irritating bumps on the fingers or toes, or dents in the fingernails. If there is no problem at all, it still feels nice to clear out the system once in a while with a combination of fasting and diatomaceous earth. It's also a good idea to take it anytime you are sick in any way, cold, flu, food poisoning, etc. Other household uses of diatomaceous earth include plugging up ant or insect entryways into the home. Bugs hate diatomaceous earth. Many people put diatomaceous earth around the base of the stem of their plants to keep bugs from climbing up. Diatomaceous earth can be made into a paste and painted over mold. This is not a solution to serious mold damage, but can prevent a small mold problem from spreading. Diatomaceous earth can be diluted in water and sprayed on surfaces that are in danger of becoming moldy, such as our basement after a flooding. Once the area is dry and clear, the thin layer of diatomaceous earth can be removed with a small bit of water and cloth, or any cleaning product. Diatomaceous earth can also be given to dogs and cats, especially if they have a worm or skin problem. Return to text. Since diatomaceous earth is so cheap, many people purchase that and only that. I have seen impressive reductions in blood sugar, blood pressure, body weight, 
brain fog, and a list of other symptoms using only diatomaceous earth for a short period of time. The shopping list in this chapter is not very long and not very expensive. By using any of the products mentioned here, I expect some result. Using more than one, or all of them, improves results dramatically. In addition to the things discussed in this chapter, there are some foods that can affect digestion, and we will cover them next. Chapter Keys People with a blood sugar problem probably have a digestive problem as well. Digestive problems can cause blood sugar problems, because nutrients are absorbed in the digestive system, and blood sugar problems are nutrient deficiencies. Digestion starts in the brain and mouth, and many people neglect these parts of eating. Stomach acid is made from salt, and we need a lot of it. Short-term use of digestive enzymes can improve digestion significantly. Probiotics are a key component of nutrient absorption, and increasing them can improve digestion and other symptoms significantly. Probiotics can be eaten in foods, or supplemented, or both. It is a good idea to consume a lot of probiotics while correcting digestion. Maintaining colonies in a smoothly operating system is easy. Diatomaceous earth is one of the cheapest ways to help clear out the digestive system. Chapter 5. Foods. We have a short list of bad foods that we recommend no one ever eat. These foods will contribute to an unhealthy body in a variety of ways, but there is only one major category that is directly relevant to the topic of blood sugar. Grains. The worst of the grains, in our opinion, are those containing gluten. Gluten is a protein, and it is not the only problematic protein in grains but it is the easiest to understand and avoid. There are several reasons why gluten is such a problem. As discussed in the digestion chapter, undigested proteins can be a huge problem if they are absorbed into the blood, causing dirty blood. But undigested proteins can also become a problem before being absorbed into the blood, because they damage the delicate villi. Gluten and related grain proteins are extremely difficult or impossible to completely digest in the stomach. If proteins are not broken down into their constituent amino acids, then there will likely be an immediate problem in the intestines. The first thing that tends to come up in a conversation about gluten is the question of why it is so bad now, but it wasn't in the past. Doesn't that mean that the anti-gluten campaign is a fad? Well, the original versions of gluten-containing grains, like wheat, barley, and rye, are very different from the modern versions we now consume. The plant itself has changed. The wheat in the Bible or the rye of ancient Sumer are not at all comparable to what we are eating today. In any case, we are claiming that some grains cause digestive problems, and digestive problems are definitely not new. Read any old book, and you will probably find people complaining of gastrointestinal issues. Though infectious diseases received most of the attention as the leading cause of death in Victorian times, gastrointestinal issues were a common cause of death. End note 17. As I was looking for a reference for this claim, I came across an interesting article, cited below. The article was discussing the factors contributing to the decline in infant mortality in the late 19th century, but has to exclude diarrhea for the decline to be apparent. That means that diarrhea, a digestive problem, was clearly still a leading cause of death, even as other conditions improved. Return to text. 
Like most agricultural products, the production of wheat and other grains has focused on improving total crop yields, with practically every other consideration, such as plant nutrition, taking a back seat. Improving yields is good for farmers and food companies, but it is rarely any good for the end consumer. One of the things this has done is reduce the other nutritional components of the grain. One of the things this has done is reduce the other nutritional components of the grain, but not the gluten. So there is just as much gluten in today's wheat as there was in ancient wheat, but now we have less of the other nutrients like vitamins and digestible protein to balance it out. To really understand why modern foods in general are different from those of ancient times, it is worth describing how food used to be made. First, basically every civilization was built on a floodplain, which is an area that experiences yearly flooding. Whether that water came from a river or a glacier doesn't really matter. What matters is that this water was rich in minerals, both in quantity and in variety. In our view, there are at least 60 essential minerals, though we believe that the entire periodic table of naturally occurring elements are essential for maximum genetic expression. We can't at this time scientifically prove this, but nonetheless 60 is already a large number. All of these elements are not found in soils across the earth. Minerals aren't distributed evenly. Some, like silicon and aluminum, are very abundant, but many of the essential minerals like selenium and chromium are trace minerals that are barren in much of the soil we have available to grow on. Modern fertilizers use only three elements, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK. Those three elements are required to maximize yields cheaply, and all three are essential to human life, but it is far short of 60. The reason for living near a floodplain is because without regular replenishment, the plants grown in the soil will suck minerals out of the ground and there is nothing to put them back in. So even if the map says that the area where your farm is has selenium in the soil, after a handful of growing seasons it is likely that none of that selenium is left in the topsoil. Humans always replenished the soil yearly. One of the worst things we ever did as a species was to dam over a million rivers in the world because they no longer flood. We now have flood control. Without replenishment, the soil is guaranteed to become barren in as little as a few growing seasons. One of the effects of growing food crops on barren soil is that the crops themselves have less natural defense against bacteria, fungus, mold, and larger pests like insects and rodents. This is why we need to use large quantities of pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides on modern crops. Footnote 10. I will call all of these pesticides for simplicity. Return to text. We humans get sick and fail to ward off common pathogens when we are lacking in nutrients, and plants get sick and weak and defenseless as well. It gets worse. Roots do not suck up minerals on their own. Roots have a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria, fungus, and other microorganisms in the soil. The microorganisms in the soil basically pre-digest minerals, which the roots then suck up into their tissues. Weak plants require more pesticides because they can't ward off pests on their own anymore. Pesticides kill soil microorganisms, therefore making it even less likely that there will be nutritional minerals in the crop. Zinc or manganese could be in the soil, but since the microbiome of the soil was chemically decimated, those minerals may not be absorbed into the plant. 
Plants require minerals to produce vitamins, amino acids, essential fatty acids, antioxidants, and other phytonutrients. They need nutrients to produce nutrients. They also require several nutrients to build their tissues properly. Even though NPK fertilizer optimizes yields most cheaply, plants require more than that to be perfectly healthy. The same nutrients that a plant requires to be strong and healthy are some of the same nutrients that we require to optimally build and maintain our tissues. End note 20. Nitrogen is necessary for chlorophyll production and for growth in the early life stages of plants. Phosphorus is primarily responsible for the growth of stems, flowers, leaves, and roots, as well as transferring energy through the plant. It also plays a role in metabolism and nutrient uptake. Potassium plays a critical role in plant respiration, water retention, and flower formation. Calcium plays a role in cell wall formation and overall plant structure, much like how it helps us build strong bones. Magnesium plays a key role in the production of growth enzymes and in photosynthesis. Magnesium is also part of the chlorophyll molecule, which is the green pigment in leaves and stems. Sulfur is important for allowing a plant to use nitrogen to produce chlorophyll, and also for supporting growth. Manganese assists with the production of growth enzymes and in metabolism. Zinc is responsible for metabolism and hormone production that prompt a plant to grow. Copper is key in the production of fruit, flowers, and seeds because it assists in cell growth. Iron is crucial for the production of chlorophyll and in moving oxygen around the plant. Boron is important in small amounts because it aids in seed production, cellular health and development, and the transport of sugars, energy, throughout the plant. All of these are essential for human life as well. Return to text. Considering all of this, our current food system produces yields that invariably have less nutrients than they should. Something magical happens here when the plant sucks up an inorganic mineral. The mineral is converted into a much smaller particle with an electric charge. These new, plant-derived minerals can be called colloidal, ionic, humic, fulvic, or organic. This is the form we are optimally designed to utilize in our bodies. We have already discussed much of the intricacy of digestion, and we have seen how large particles and compounds can be problematic. It is very logical to see how a smaller particle would be more optimal for absorption, even if we leave aside the more complicated aspect of the electric charge. When you see modern grain-based foods with something like calcium on the label, you can assume that this is the larger, inorganic form of the mineral. Indeed, usually calcium will be followed by another word, like carbonate or citrate, which shows that these are calcium compounds. Grain-based foods are fortified with extra nutrients in part because we had already recognized over a hundred years ago that nutrient deficiencies in people consuming modern processed foods was a big problem. This is only one part of the problem. The next is the actual recipes that these grains are used in. In pre-industrial times, breads and other flour-based foods hardly resembled what they are now. Most of these foods are now just flour and sugar with maybe an egg involved, and that's if you make it yourself. If you buy a flour food in a package, it will also likely contain processed oils and other ingredients that we would call junk. Processed oils are also on our bad list, but that will be covered later. Flowers of old were not just grains. Grain flour was hard to make. Wheat and other grains were difficult to grow and cultivate, 
and without modern yield maximization, most people had their flour intake limited by the land they could farm. No one could grow enough wheat to have cookies every day. But in the modern world, even a homeless person begging for coins can eat sugary flour foods three times a day. Flour also had to be milled, which means crushed into tiny pieces. This was hard to do. Grains are tough. An old mill could be set up on a river, with the waters turning a gear that would grind the grain. This type of setup was complicated and relatively expensive compared to more primitive methods, and a single water mill would sometimes serve the milling needs of an entire township. More primitive methods include pounding it by hand, which is definitely the most laborious, or using a draft animal like a donkey or ox which would walk around in circles as it moved a grinding stone via a gear system. Just imagine having to manually grind all the flour you consume, and you can easily see how using less grain would probably be an automatic consequence of having to work so hard for the flour. To make up for the difficulty of farming, harvesting, and milling grains, people all over the world used other ingredients to fill up the flour recipes. The natural lifestyle provides at least two key ingredients for this filler, and both are completely absent from today's food system and grain-based foods. The first ingredient is illustrated by the famous fable Jack and the Beanstalk. Fee fi fo fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Primitive people ate entire animals, snout to tail. They ate the organs and the muscle, as well as the joints and the bones. Many cultures make soups, stews, and puddings from the blood. In the Philippines, blood stew, or dinaguan, is commonly known as chocolate meat, as the cooked blood thickens and mixes with the meat and spices into a dark chocolate brown color. Footnote 11. This might not sound appetizing, but it's actually mind-blowingly good. Return to text. Bones and joints were boiled down into broth, which was used in most of the daily dishes, and then softened bones were ground into bone meal, sometimes called bone flour. Grinding bones is a lot of work, but pre-industrial people had to squeeze all the value out of their foods. Unlike grains, bones don't mess up our villi, and we do not require gluten or similar proteins for our health. They are not essential nutrients but the constituent components of bones and joints are absolutely essential for human health and longevity. In addition to our bones, joints, and teeth being made of the same stuff, the calcium which comprises around 65% of bone material has numerous other roles in human metabolism, muscle function, and soft tissues like skin and gums. At least 200 diseases on the physician's desk reference are linked to calcium deficiency. The other major non-grain component of pre-industrial flowers was ash. The damming of the million rivers did more than just take away a major source of field minerals. It also gave us abundant access to electricity. When a household is powered by electricity, it no longer requires fire for cooking and heating, and thus there are no ashes left over as a byproduct. Primitive homesteads would burn wood, grass, manure, excess crop material like grain stalks and leaves, and if they lived by the sea, they would burn seaweeds and mosses. When the carbon is burned off, what is left is plant-derived minerals. Both bones and ash were natural, mineral-rich byproducts of the primitive lifestyles, and they were both major components of grain-based recipes. Ash would also most likely have been added to the bone meal, 
After being softened with boiling, ground, and dried, people would have noticed that they still could have a hard time digesting raw bone meal. Ash was added into practically everything in a primitive kitchen. Salt was so valuable that it was cut with ash, with up to 10 parts ash to 1 part salt. This is comparable to garlic salt or some other herbal cooking salt sold at the grocery store. Ash would be added into anything that would require flour today. A stew is simply a soup that is thickened. Today a chef would mix flour into cooking fat like butter, ghee, clarified butter, or duck fat together in a bowl and thicken the soup or stock with that mixture. This is called a roux. A primitive person would have a lot of ash and not a lot of grain flour. So the old bread recipe would not call for one cup of flour. It would more likely be one third cup of flour, one third cup of bone meal, one third cup of culinary fine white ash. The grain flour itself would be more nutritious because it was grown on healthier soils and on top of all of this, other ingredients such as dried fruit, herbs, vegetables, eggs, and even meat would be common inclusions in practically everything that would be made with flour. I haven't even mentioned actual sugar yet. These old recipes would hardly require sugar. Grains themselves barely have a taste and would be completely inedible if it weren't for the milling and cooking. But ash has a taste, which is why it was used as a condiment. Without the other ingredients in a primitive or modern recipe, no one would eat bread. Without the healthier and tastier ingredients like ash and herbs and fruit, now we need sugar. Of course, before commercially available sugar, our homestead and small community sugar would also require farming, harvesting, and milling. And that is one reason why people used less of it in the past. They made jams from berries and collected honey and syrup, and these could be used in breads and cookies and other dishes. There is a period in the standard version of human history and evolution that is called the Great Leap Forward. This is a time when we humans supposedly got a lot smarter very quickly. Several theorists believe that this was because of the use of fire. There are many parts to this theory, but one of them is that this allowed us to eat things that were previously not digestible like roots and grains. No one eats raw potatoes or rye. In essence, theorists who ascribe to this version of the Great Leap Forward theory believe that this jump in intelligence has to do with the foods we were now eating. The problem is, the longest lived populations and individuals on Earth have very little in common in the way they eat. Some are pig farmers, some are swamp dwellers in the Gulf of Mexico, some are modern French ladies, the Hunza people in the mountains of Pakistan eat very differently from the seaside people of Okinawa, Japan. Both populations live long and healthy lives on completely different diets. This is because food is not the most important factor. As long as their digestion is working fine and they are getting plenty of micronutrients, it doesn't really matter what specific foods they eat. Many people avoid eating pig, and by this explanation, this is fine. Avoiding one or two types of meat or a handful of vegetables is no big deal. You don't have to eat any specific type of fruit. There is no fruit that grows everywhere, and yet long-lived people are scattered all over the world. I believe that this great leap would have been facilitated by the availability of plant-derived minerals in the form of ash. It wasn't that we could now cook and eat new foods, it was that we now had ashes at our campsites. All minerals are not going to be in all soils. But people who are burning things from a wide area will invariably have a wider variety of minerals in the ashes. 
Some of these will be trace minerals, and some will hopefully be super trace minerals called rare earth minerals. They're called that because they're rare in most earth. Many people have now heard of rare earth minerals because of their use in modern technologies. Much of what makes our modern technology and materials powerful, resilient, and functional are because of the unique properties of exotic minerals, many of which are also essential for humans. Cobalt is used in super alloys, jet turbines, and rechargeable batteries. In human nutrition, cobalt is part of the B12 molecule, which is why B12 is called cobalamin. All cells require B12, and therefore they all require cobalt. The same material that is used in rechargeable batteries is also required for our cellular machines to continue running and regenerating. Lithium is also used in batteries and is on our list of essential minerals. Lithium is commonly known as a drug because it is used as part of an antidepressant formula. To us, we say that it is part of the recipe for a healthy mood and energy. Again, it's used to store energy and technology, and we get depressed without it. We could go on with a list of minerals you probably haven't heard of, performing functions in technology that I don't understand. But the point is that these exotic and rare earth elements are in large part the reason why our technology is smart. We believe that these minerals are also the reason we are smart, and why we live so much longer than anatomically comparable species like dogs, pigs, and other apes. As our technology has improved, we use more and more of these elements in our industrial production, and we rely on the resulting products heavily. In this view, one reason our technology continues to improve and our human populations continue to deteriorate is largely because of the fact that we put these elements into our phones, but not into our bodies. The nutrients required to use insulin are also trace minerals that we need in very small amounts. The two trace minerals in this case are chromium and vanadium. Chromium, along with other nutrients, makes glucose tolerance factor, which is basically a cofactor for the metabolization of insulin and carbohydrates. Periodically over the decades, it has been widely publicized that chromium supplementation in animals is part of the reason we have conquered diabetes in animals. After such publicity, blood chromium levels tend to increase in the population studied. They heard that it works in animals, so they go out and they buy it themselves. If you have a blood sugar problem, then it is wise to further increase chromium and its partner, vanadium. Our general products contain all 90 essential nutrients, but we also have blood sugar support products, which increase chromium and vanadium beyond the basic amounts that are in our recommended daily products. We don't expect the blood sugar support product to work on its own, because of the many cofactors for these two nutrients. Most people do not need this extra boost, and their symptoms tend to disappear with the basic full-spectrum supplementation. Vanadium is required in smaller amounts than chromium, but it is also more rare. Deficiencies in chromium and vanadium are the root cause of type 2 diabetes and the other blood sugar problems. Remember that type 2 diabetics and people with any other symptom of a blood sugar problem are not lacking in insulin. This is why. They are producing insulin but they are lacking chromium, vanadium, and likely a spread of other nutrient cofactors that are required to use insulin. Vanadium stimulates the oxidation of glucose, which is a required part of the process when glucose is used. Oxidation is usually considered a bad thing, but oxidation is part of metabolism. Anytime energy is expended, some oxidation occurs. Glucose is fuel, 
and it is oxidized as it is being burned in the engine of the cell. So we need vanadium to actually burn the glucose in the cell and get the energy from it. In addition, vanadium makes the cell membrane receptors more sensitive to insulin, thereby allowing the body to more efficiently use whatever insulin is available. Remember that insulin resistance is part of what causes diabetes, we are told. If the body is lacking in vanadium, then receptors on the cell membrane will be less sensitive to insulin, or resistant to it. Those receptors are supposed to decide what to let in or not let into the cell. And if they can't detect insulin because they lack vanadium, then the insulin isn't getting in. The small amounts of these and other trace minerals that we require are not available on our farmlands. It takes a lot of burned wood or sea moss to concentrate these trace minerals into nutritionally significant quantities. Fields are flooded with water containing mud and silt measured in tons in order to have micrograms of some trace minerals and nanograms of rare earth minerals, if they're lucky, in a food crop. We make our plant-derived mineral supplement from humic shale, which is ancient desiccated plant material. It takes 78 pounds of shale, ground up, filtered, added to water, and then diluted to the human tolerance level to make one quart of a liquid product that is supposed to last 32 days for 100 pounds of body weight. 78 pounds of raw material for 100 pounds of human body weight per month. The only possible way that primitive people could get the quantity and variety of minerals they required to continue in this great leap forward of human development is with a combination of the strategies in this chapter. They do have many pounds of concentrated plant material in the form of ash, and they do add many pounds of raw mineral material to their growing fields. This book is about simple strategies to improve your health, and this whole chapter illustrates why it is not at all practical to try to get all the essential nutrients in food alone, or by going out and burning a bunch of stuff to eat the ashes. You cannot grow everything you need, and you probably don't have access to enough trees or seaweed to burn it for ash. The people who use ash have it as a byproduct of their lifestyles. That's not our lifestyle. It's not practical, and for most people it is not even possible to attempt to do all of the things that primitive people do to get their nutrients. You'll burn your food processor out quickly trying to grind up bones. We do recommend making bone broths and soups, but that alone is not enough to get the required calcium and other bone and joint nutrients. When it comes to ashes and field irrigation, you're going to be spending quite literally all of your time living an Amish-style life of farming and cutting wood, and you'll probably still end up short on some minerals. This is again because all of the trace and rare earth minerals are not spread evenly across the earth. You have to be lucky to be in a place that has them available, and then you have to pile a lot of it up before those quantities are enough to end up in your brain or liver. Understanding how primitive people got their nutrients is very important to understanding the simple solution, supplements. A lot of people don't like the idea of supplements because they seem unnatural, and it is true that many products use many things that are quite unnatural. But the natural version of the recipe, as we've seen, is an entire lifestyle, and not an easy or glamorous one. It simply can't be done in a city or suburb. And if you attempt it out in the forest, you better have help. And you better live in a place with all the minerals. There is one more major component of the natural lifestyle that is relevant to understanding why modern food is so different. In addition to irrigating farmland with mineral-rich water, 
Pre-industrial people would also compost heavily. Everything that was not eaten by the humans or the pigs or the dogs would go into a compost heap. These piles of organic material could be bigger than the family home. Whatever bones were not ground up would go into the heap, as well as eggshells, excess crop material, the black ash that was not considered edible, human and animal manure, and yard waste like leaves. This created a highly nutrient-dense material that was used as topsoil. After the floods, people would till the soil, mixing in the new minerals and adding this rich organic compost on top. In places that were not on a floodplain, such as islands, this compost was an even more important part of the growing cycle. I hope with this brief explanation you will never look at grain-based foods the same. What we eat now is entirely different from the same named foods in the past. Meat is still meat, carrot is still carrot, but bread is definitely not still bread. And all of these foods will have less nutritional value than they would have if they were grown or raised on healthier soils without pesticides. Having said all of this, our very first food recommendation for anyone, particularly anyone with a blood sugar problem, is to completely abstain from most or all grains. Some grains are far less problematic than those containing gluten and similar proteins. Rice, buckwheat, which is not wheat at all. Teff, millet, amaranth, sorghum, and corn are all okay, though I do recommend that any grains you consume be labeled organic so that they have been grown without pesticides. The pesticide thing is more of a precaution, and it will make no difference to your blood sugar. Wheat, barley, rye, oats, and quinoa are on my definitely, completely abstain list. Wheat, barley, and rye are the primary gluten-containing grains and these will have two main negative effects on the body. Since these grains are extremely difficult or impossible to fully break down in the stomach, these undigested proteins can be a big problem if they are absorbed into the blood, and whether they are absorbed or not, I expect them to physically damage the delicate villi. Over time, this damage turns the villi into scar tissue, dramatically lowering the absorption capacity of the intestines. Oats are on the list for this same reason. You cannot break down oats properly, leading to intestinal damage or dirty blood, or both. Oats are technically gluten-free, but they are just as problematic, if not more problematic, than the gluten grains. I like to say oats are for goats, because goats and other ruminant animals have four stomachs, allowing them to actually break down these proteins and digest them properly. Other animals like a horse or elephant only have one stomach, like us, but it is much larger than ours as are their intestines, and in any case, they don't fully digest much of their food, which means that they have to eat much more of it. People ask all the time why a horse can eat grains, but we can't, and their extended digestive system is only one part of the equation. Another consideration is that we humans live much longer than most animals. A very old horse, 25 to 30 years old, is still a rather young human. If a horse's intestines are damaged from gluten at the age of 25, the horse has already reached its maximum genetic capacity, or close to it, and so this doesn't really matter. But a 25-year-old human still has a lot of living left, and they require their intestines to be functional in order for their body to function properly for the rest of those years. In addition to this physical problem with grains, there is the problem of gluten intolerance. We like to describe gluten intolerance as the equivalent of a poison ivy rash on the inside. Poison ivy, poison oak, or any similar irritant causes a pseudo-allergic reaction, 
that is called contact dermatitis. Footnote 13. True allergies are anaphylactic, which is a severe, life-threatening reaction. True allergies require an EpiPen, which is an injection of the hormone epinephrine, more commonly known as adrenaline. Return to text. Gluten and similar proteins can cause this on the inside, which is called contact enteritis, or more simply, internal inflammation, caused by contact with an irritant. The villi are there to expand the surface area, but when the irritants cause this inflammation, the villi swell up and have less surface area to do their job of absorption. It is wise to simply assume that you are gluten intolerant. We advise people to pretend that they are a celiac, someone very sensitive to gluten, and avoid all foods that a celiac would avoid. Remember that the grains your grandmother ate are not the ones on the shelf today. The plants today are less healthy, containing less overall protein, less vitamins and minerals, and there is much more of the grain ingredients in modern recipes relative to older recipes. Even though the grains of today have about as much gluten as the ancient versions, they have less of the good stuff that is supposed to be in the plant, and recipes including gluten have less or none of the other filler such as bone and ash, which reduce the overall quantity of gluten in an old bread or noodle. It takes time for the intestines to heal from years or decades of damage, but they can indeed heal. Two foods I do recommend for accelerating the internal healing are bone broth and aloe. You don't have to use both, but I would pick one and use it steadily for at least three months. Aloe has a soothing effect on the digestive system, as does bone broth, but the broth also has the connective tissue components that the intestines are made of. Quinoa might seem out of place on my definitely not list, but it is there for good reason. When we tell people to pretend they are celiac, they will see quinoa on internet lists of permissible grains. I know from experience that this can still be a problem. Many people tell me that they are completely gluten-free, but on further investigation, they have replaced many of their grain-based dishes with quinoa, and are still showing signs of gluten intolerance. In other words, as long as they are eating quinoa, they cannot seem to heal. If they're not improving, there is still a problem, and since this happens so many times, I have banned quinoa for my clients. I do not see this problem with rice, teff, corn, or others on my OK list. After you have completely reset your digestion and have improved significantly over a period of at least three months, you can have a small bit of quinoa now and then if you absolutely must. You can see if you have a direct reaction to it with a simple pulse test. Do not eat for 24 hours, then eat only the suspect food. Take your pulse a few minutes before eating it, during, a few minutes after, and about an hour after. Write down the numbers, and if the pulse spikes significantly after eating the food, your body does not like it. You can try the pulse test again in a couple of months, after even more internal healing has taken place and there is a chance that the food is no longer a problem for you. You can do this for any food you suspect is aggravating your system. This is essentially a simpler version of the elimination diet. The above paragraph only counts for whole grain quinoa. I do not ever recommend eating gluten-free products that use quinoa flour. When grains were milled with a stone, they were invariably much bigger pieces than the finely ground powders we get today by heavy equipment milling. Smaller particles have more surface area. Remember that our intestines are lined with villi and microvilli to expand surface area for absorption, which is a good thing. When bigger gluten particles passed through the intestine, there was less chance that they would be absorbed into the blood, 
and there was less surface area on each particle, so there was less area to contact the villi and cause the contact enteritis, or inflammation of the villi. Modern flowers are much more finely ground, and therefore have much more surface area to irritate the guts. Footnote 14. A similar concept applies to concrete. When finely ground aggregate, like sand or ground limestone, is used, the end concrete is much stronger than it would be if the aggregate were made of larger pebbles. You can often see large rocks in concrete road barriers and other blocks that do not need to be very strong, but the aggregate used in large buildings and bridges are going to be finely ground. Return to text. If you have already been reading about blood sugar from other sources, you might have been surprised to see that I consider rice okay. It is a high glycemic food, which means that it is a food that the body rapidly converts into blood sugar, glucose. Glucose is what your cells eat. Your body will digest proteins, fats, and carbs and turn them all into glucose to feed the cells. Some foods convert faster than others. As a rule, carbs and sugars convert to glucose faster than fats and proteins. The energy you get from carbs and sugars is also spent faster than with protein and fat. So, high glycemic food causes blood sugar to rise rapidly and fall rapidly. Eating a mix of high and low glycemic food is not a problem for a healthy person. When the body is properly nourished and the digestive system is clean, there is enough nutrients for insulin to do its job, and both the spike and the crash should be hardly noticeable. This is especially true if the high glycemic rice is eaten with low glycemic chicken and steamed green vegetables, or high glycemic dried dates with low glycemic butter. Adding the protein or fat reduces much of the problem of high glycemic foods, assuming that the portion sizes of the carbs are reasonable. Blood sugar problems are not entirely a glucose problem, and we have reached a point in the book here where this should actually make sense. Your cells eat sugar, and so sugar is not the enemy. But we require many micronutrients to metabolize sugar. More sugar means we need more micronutrients. Fats, proteins, and carbs, including sugars, are macronutrients. These are nutrients that need to be broken down into their constituent components for digestion. Micronutrients are the constituents, vitamins, amino acids, minerals, and essential fatty acids, also called EFAs or omegas. By describing above how modern foods are different from their older versions, we have also described the gist of why our food supply is utterly deficient in micronutrients. By damming the rivers, we have prevented two major sources of dietary minerals from getting into the food, no more flooding and no more fire. And by culturally only eating the muscle of animals, we have lost our third major source of minerals, bones, joints, connective tissue, and to a lesser degree, organs. On our list of 90 essential nutrients, minerals are 60 of them, two-thirds. Plants can make vitamins, amino acids, and omegas, but they cannot make minerals. If the mineral is not in the soil, then it is not in the plant. If they're not added into the hydroponic system, they're not in the hydroponically grown food. Though plants can make enzymes, those enzymes require mineral cofactors to be used in the body. Minerals are not distributed evenly across the earth. Some are abundant in some locations and scarce or completely absent in others. This is why gold and silver veins are mined. There may or may not be tiny amounts of gold in any random shovel of earth, and so it is not worth looking for it except where we know there are veins of it. Gold prospectors look for veins. Gold and silver are both essential minerals on our list, by the way but you can think of most minerals in this way. 
Some minerals are abundant and they can be expected to be in practically any farm field, but most of the essential minerals are quite randomly distributed and there are huge swaths of land that are barren of certain important minerals. My house is in a huge region called the Canadian Shield, which is practically devoid of selenium. Missing this one mineral can cause a list of full-blown diseases, some of which are quickly fatal, such as cardiomyopathy heart attack. Even if we ignored the other 59 essential minerals, I must supplement with selenium, because I simply cannot count on it being in my food. We recommend supplementing with all of the essential nutrients, because it is excessively unlikely, basically impossible, that they are all in your food. The food system described above, with the flooding and the bones and the ash and the compost, greatly increased both the quantity and variety of minerals in the foods. Rivers that travel vast distances invariably pick up a large variety of minerals, and animals that forage, especially ones that travel great distances, will also be picking up a greater variety of minerals than those that are born, raised, and slaughtered on the same farmland. Some plants will also have a wider variety of minerals in them because of larger, older root systems. Trees and vines are harvested for years and decades, and so these plants will have much deeper root systems, which can be in contact with a greater surface area of earth, and thus access more minerals. Deeper roots also avoid much of the chemical poisoning of the microbiome in the topsoil, whereas most of our standard food crops are planted from brand new seeds each season, and thus have shorter roots that are mostly only in the topsoil. I mentioned that an exception to the irrigation rule are people that live on islands, but actually, any seaside population is an exception because they have access to sea plants and animals. All of the minerals on the periodic table are in seawater, though most of them are in very tiny quantities. These minerals are concentrated in the tissues of things that grow and live in the sea. Each step up the food chain magnifies this concentration. Sea plants have more minerals than seawater. Creatures that eat sea plants have more minerals in turn. Creatures that eat those creatures have even more minerals, and so on. This process is called biomagnification, or bioaccumulation. Alright, that is the end of part one. Make sure to check out part two, of course. Remember, you can get this book on Amazon, and you can see it and all of my other books on my website, notusbooks.org. And of course, beyond this book, we have lots of episodes here on the podcast all about health. And that's it. I appreciate you. Until next time.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.